Recorded live. So, here's what I'm hearing from the uh, Cognoscenti. There's this team in Tuscaloosa called Alabama, and apparently they're way better than everyone else at playing college football. And so now it's the battle to be who's going to be the team that they're going to beat in the national championship game. Is that what you're hearing, Jim? I hear it every year, so, like, that's <laughs> – I mean, yeah, that's what I'm hearing. It happens every year. It's like clockwork. <laughs> right, I guess, I guess that makes sense when you think about it that way. Okay, well, then let me, let me ask the obvious follow-up question. So we've now seen – or at least uh, I'll speak for myself. I've seen now at least once every team in the top – in fact, I've seen every team in the top 25 at least once, and I've seen every team in the top 10, I think, now more than once uh, with, with last week's games being in. People always talk about what kind of team it takes to beat Alabama because, as you said, every year it comes down to <laughs> saying, oh, well, here's the best team in football now, who in college football at least, who's going to be the team that gets to be humanely destroyed by them in front of an audience of tens of thousands in person and millions on television. So the formula, at least at one point, was sort of what Texas A&M was when they beat them and then what they are now to some extent, a quote-unquote dual-threat quarterback who improvises, makes plays outside the pocket, extends plays, uh, creates big plays from plays that shouldn't have been big plays and can escape the seemingly inescapable pass rush that uh, that Alabama has made a hallmark of their defenses since long before you were born, and frankly, um, even slightly before I was born. So I'm not going to focus on the exam exclusively, but of the teams, I mean, obviously Clemson, I guess, to some extent, is one of those teams that people bring up as well. Of the teams that seem to be the kind of team that could give Alabama trouble, at least theoretically, is there one that you think is particularly well-suited to at least make a good accounting of itself when it finally, if it did finally face Alabama? Yeah, I mean, the the issue with the old adage of how do you beat Alabama when you beat them with a spread offense is kind of an old argument that doesn't work anymore because back then their secondary had issues. True. You know, they had issues in their secondary. They didn't quite have the pass rush that you expected of them. Like, their defense was a little overrated. I mean, I'm just going to say that. Like, everybody kind of overrated their defense in terms of how good their pass rush was and how good their secondary was. And the problem is now is that Alabama secondary is better than it was back then in terms of their ability to, to play the pass. And their pass rush is probably the best it's ever been up to this point, at least in terms of the variety of pass rushers they have and the effectiveness of those um, particular pass rushers. So if you're going to beat Alabama, you're going to beat them by, you know, through traditional fundamental football things, you know, (laughs) not turning the football over, capitalizing on their turnovers, uh, you know, calling the best game plan you ever could imagine in terms of 
in in terms of what you what you're trying to do to them, you have to basically out coach them. Uh and that's the real issue is who exactly can out coach them. And to me, Michigan I'm not gonna say that Harbaugh can out coach them, but Michigan is a team that is that has a good defense. Uh they have uh, a, a decent overall secondary that could create turnovers. And on offense, they have enough that they can – they have speed on offense uh, with lots of different guys to where they can actually make a, a fuss. The real question is, do you trust Spate? I mean, I don't trust Spate, but if you trust them, then, then that's the that's the real key there. Uh, the, the second team is Ohio State for obvious reasons. I mean, Urban Meyer is a coach there. They have a offense that, uh, for the most part, even – they have offense that's kind of built to deal with uh, issues with power uh, because they're very uh, – I'm not going to say they're – well, they're kind of finesse, but, like, they've shown this season that – I mean, I was watching the Indiana game where if you have guys that are powerful inside, uh, they can create issues for them. Um, but at the same time, they're able to kind of play in space to to uh, a certain level to where they can kind of get around that. So. Ohio State is just kind of there just because it's coached by Urban Meyer, and they do have an offense that can that can expose a few things and get good matchups and stuff like that. And I think the last team to me is Washington because it's Chris Peterson who's the coach, and they have a quarterback there with a relatively decent offensive line. Uh, they have playmakers on offense. They have wide receivers that are deceptive in what they do. Uh, you know, they're not uh, both of them. I mean, both Pettis and Ross are wide receivers that, you know, that do take the time to vary their releases, do take the time to not always give up what they're doing in their routes. So, theoretically, Washington would be a team that I could see go up against Alabama, give them lots of issues in their secondary. And Jake Browning is, is fairly is, – has been – again, Jake Browning has been a guy who can hit tight – you know, he can hit uh, – the open spots in zone relatively well and is accurate and is smart and makes good decisions. It doesn't turn the football over. Um, so that would be sort of a game where I could see Washington also matching up. But other than those teams, I just doubt it because I think Louisville turns the football over too much. Clemson turns the football over too much. Uh, Texas A&M turns the football over too much. I mean, you have to be, a fundamentally sound football team. You can't turn the football over, and you also have to be disciplined in terms of what you're trying to do and also being able to put up points on them. And I think those are the only, at least to me, Michigan, Ohio State, and Washington are the only teams that I think have the best chance to take down Alabama if they were to face them. Those are interesting choices because, obviously, one of those teams is, I mean, people don't picture Spates <laughs> – as the kind of guy that Alabama would have trouble with. And obviously it's the offense that's the least, I mean, with the exception of people like Stanford and Wisconsin, the least of the pictures that fit. When people think about, oh, the teams that give Alabama trouble, what Clemson did, what Texas A&M did, obviously the mental picture is not, <laughs> not Michigan. But as you pointed out, Michigan can probably get some sustained drives, even against Alabama's defense. And that's the other thing is that teams that can actually, when they have to, you know, the people use terms like four-minute offense or whatever you want to call it, when you, if you need 
to have a 12-play drive for whatever reason, like late in the game to salt something away or just to rest up your sort of beaten-up defense. Some teams have the ability to do that. Washington, thus far, is like a team that can do that. Uh, obviously, that's Michigan's entire modus operandi. And then in Ohio State, you know, you've got, I don't know, ex- exotic finesse mouth. I mean, I don't know what you call the, the offense exactly. It is spread-ish, but it's it's spread. It's a spread that needs to run, first of all. I mean, it's a spread that if you don't run the football, doesn't work. Uh, they don't have a super sophisticated pass attack. Their passing is almost all based off of you trying to stop the run first. Uh, they want you to have eight in the box, if at all possible. They want you to be forced to play a lot of uh, defenses where you've got people near the box, concerned about the box, near the box, I mean, looking at the box, all that. If The only thing that concerns me is that if indeed they played Alabama, if their running game did get you know, basically throttled and you had to put the ball pretty much all the time in the hands of J.T. Barrett, who is a, a very good college quarterback, he would have to step his game up to the kind of level that we saw Deshaun Watson play against Alabama last year, which is something I think only a handful of quarterbacks can do in college. I mean, including, I mean, Deshaun Watson can't do it this year at least, or at least hasn't. And I don't know if he's 100% healthy. I mean, that, that's, I think there's sort of a story that hasn't been told there about his health. I don't know. I could be wrong. He could just be a guy who's struggling to match up to the expectations of this year. His receivers aren't as good. Who knows? Who knows what the, I don't know what, what's going on there. But he's looked not quite like the same guy this year. And like I said, I think there's some untold story regarding, it may not be a serious injury, but I'd be shocked if he doesn't have at least some sort of nagging injury. But I agree. Uh, Clemson is no longer, I'll be, I'll be completely honest. I, I would, Carolina, if I'm Alabama, scares me more right now, this very minute, than Clemson does. But, of course, uh, Carolina is exceedingly inconsistent. Uh, they are a year away probably, if, if everything works out perfectly, from being a real threat to, to a team like Alabama. And very few teams even get to that point. It's so hard to – you mentioned coaching. And people, I think, somehow forget – People always make this assumption that coaches in the world coach, you know, pro because, you know, it's all football then and blah, blah, blah. But that, that to some extent can be the thing that is your, your, your saving grace is that you're dealing with guys, that's their job, and very often they've been coached really well by the time you get them. Ideally, in fact, they've been coached really well by the time you get them. Not to say that these guys aren't well coached at the, at the high school level, but the really good high school teams are really good because they have really, really, really good players, which is the same as college and pro. I mean, I mean, better players wins at every level. That's, you know, I mean, Urban Meyer himself, you know, when he was asked about this year, it's like, well, I have really good players. I mean, yes, good point on that, Urban. You have excellent players at every level of your team. But, and obviously, you know, Alabama, I mean, you know, enough said about player quality. They, they have, ridiculously good players all over the field all the time. That's what they do there. But what stands out to me, and the thing that I think people may not always understand how incredibly important it is, you mentioned coaching. Kevin Sumlin's a really good coach, and this is probably his best chance in terms of the way his team is built to to be a national championship contender. But I'm not so sure. I mean, obviously, you know, 
hey, who knows what a man can do when he's asked to do it. But I'm not so sure that he's ever – well, I mean, he's beaten them before. So I guess we have to, we have to factor that well, in. You have to you have to think of it from this perspective. Who is the man? Who was the man that beat Alabama on Oklahoma? Trevor Knight. You know yes. that that's who. So like that's 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 kind of. I mean, if you think about it, that's a little bit why they got him. It, it but, makes sense. But at the same time, as as time passes, it becomes more and more like that was a bit of a anomaly, if you will. I'm not going to say a sure. fluke, but a little oh. bit more oh. of, yeah. you know, being really lucky and then not having a ton of film on him, obviously, because, you know, he didn't, there wasn't that much film on him. There was a couple of games, but not a ton. Well, and then going in there and then doing the thing. Well, let's take it a step further. Beating Alabama is an anomaly in and of itself. It doesn't happen very often. It takes a lot of things going your way. Even if you're a very good football team, it takes a lot of things going your way for it to happen. If Michigan did it, it would take a lot of things going their way. It would take something else besides, I mean, Alabama would have to do something or not do something. They would have to play out of their minds. I mean, you need, it takes everything going right. Teams that don't play incredibly well, no matter how talented they are, don't, you know, don't stay within 17 points, frankly, of Alabama, let alone you know, have a chance to beat them. So... You need to have your guys play basically the best football of their careers. You need your coaches to do their best coaching of their careers. You need Alabama to make one or two mistakes or somebody to, you know, not be fully healthy or to not be utilized. Something right? So let's be a supposition that you're going to need some help anyway because that's usually what happens. You get some form of assistance. Something happens that doesn't normally happen that helps you out somehow in a way, you know, um, whatever it is. Something, something goes your way. Something happens, happens that goes your way. You get a, a bizarre special teams play, you know, something happens. Some weird thing happens, right? So that helps you. You get a win. Now, or you get a chance to win. I'll put it even that way. You get a chance to win. You're, you get to stay in the game, which is, you know, the, big, the biggest initial challenge is even being in the game. Now you need to execute a really good game plan that does two things. Exploits whatever weakness you think Alabama has, which, as you pointed out, this is one of their better – I mean, Alabama's defense, you put it down as being good every year, but this seems, even for Alabama, to be an exceptionally good defense. Their designated pass rusher guys are better than their designated pass rusher guys have been recently. Their big old run plugger guys are – they are big run plugger guys, but they seem to have a little more juice, at least to my eyes, than some of the people that people were so excited about two years ago and last year. It's like, mm, oh, wait, these guys. Now give me – now, wait a second. Now I'm a little more interested. I mean, they're still big run pluggers, but they give you a little, little something extra. There's a little, you know, cocktail sauce, a little jalapeno pepper, a little something. It's not just meat. It's got some flavor to it, some sizzle, some snaps, some pop. And their secondary, I'm always torn about Alabama's secondary. Like I always, it looks good, I think it's good, but something always, I always have a nagging suspicion that they aren't as good as they look for some reason. I don't know. I, I have to, that's well, just me. That's my personal hang They're up. never challenged that much. Maybe that's what it know? is. <laughs> because they, 
as much as I like Marlon Humphrey, he really hasn't got that much involved in, in a ton of things because he's always in coverage. Eddie Jackson doesn't really get involved in that much stuff because he's always in coverage. So you're not really going to – I mean, the defensive line is the, is the core yeah. of that team. So it's really just a matter of, you know, they're just not tested that much because of how the team is built. You know, it's it's built to rush the passer, force short throws, and then they clean up that stuff. So, right. you know, it's it's just something that the, it's just how it is. You know, you, you, a lot of these guys are untested. Guys like Eddie Jackson and Humphrey really are, I mean, I, who is the best wide receiver Marlon Humphrey even went up against this year? You know, huh. if, you, if you think about it. So, did, and he, on the other side, did he face too. Darius Rogers in the UST game? Is that who he drew? Yeah, but I mean, the thing about Darius Rogers and even Juju Smith is they are they are they are wide receivers that, for the most part of what I've seen, everything they do is really simple, and. Yep. There's not a ton of deception to what they're trying to do. They both like, tip in other their pitches. Words, yeah, I'm with you. They both tip their pitches. You, you in other words, Alabama, Alabama hasn't gone against a wide receiver who is varying his releases, who's changing it up, who's trying to set them. Like, they haven't gone up against that type of a guy um, on, on offense. So, because of that, it's really hard to really say whether they've been tested or not, you know, in terms of those types of types of things. You know, it's like anything else. You know, you think they're good in coverage until they go up against a really good route runner, and I just don't think they've gone up against a really good route runner yet so far this year. Good point. Well said. Yeah, I, I'll i be interested to see. And the, the, I think the last team you tossed in there, Washington, is the one that people – there's that still that sort of, I don't know, stigma, whatever the term you want to use, partially because people don't see Washington. Let's just be flat-out honest. A lot of people – including people who vote for some of these things, having either have not seen Washington at all or not seen Washington much because of Pacific, right, Pac-12. Two, people are still getting used to the idea that Washington is that good. I'm getting used to it. I mean, I, I thought Washington would, would be, once again, we talked about like with Carolina a year away. I thought they'd be an eight, nine-win team that would be really dangerous next year because they're still super young at most places. That's a still – a very young football team. A lot of sophomores, a uh, fair number of freshmen, a bunch of juniors. Just a light sprinkling of seniors on that on that two deep. So I'm getting used to the idea that they're this good. <laughs> you know, I, exactly. I, so I get maybe that's part and, of it. And there is and there is a sense of I mean I remember Donovan. You know, when we were on Donovan's show saying that you know Jake Browning hasn't really been tested by pass rush that much, which I I do agree. You know. But at the same time, he has shown ability to step up in the pocket. He has shown to be able to manipulate outside rush relatively well. So, I mean, he's shown pocket presence that's improved, at least to me, in terms of, you know, being better. So, I mean, the only questions I have in Washington is that I think defensively, as much as people praise the defense, it's a little smoke and mirrors to a certain extent, like they don't quite have I mean just size wise you know they I, I was going to say I worry about a little bit about if they face a team like Wisconsin or a team like Alabama or really any team that can just run it down the gut you know for 23 times with a torn 30 some pound guy 
it might not do much in the first, even second quarter, but somewhere in the middle of the third quarter. Uh, that yeah. Can... <laughs> don't wear on them. Right. Those third and as much as people, Yeah. And as much as people might say, well, Stanford, I'd go, yeah, but Stanford's offensive line this year. Not that good. Not really been that great. Um, nope. They, there, there are aspects of it that I like, but the offensive line is a unit, the organism, you know, and if you have, you know, two guys that are executing and three other guys that aren't executing, you're not going anywhere. So um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what Stanford is this year. I mean, they have some players that are good, but then, you know, it, it's a lot like with Josh Garnett last year where I was watching the Northwestern game and Josh Garnett was the only guy executing. You know, he was getting to the second level. He was he yep. was blocking guys, but yep. everybody else was just letting people get into the backfield constantly. So it doesn't matter if Josh Garnett's getting to the second level because – there's nowhere to run because of all the other stuff going on. And I think um, a, a team like Alabama, because that's the thing, Alabama's real weaknesses are offensive line base when it comes to pass protection. And we've seen that with guys like Cam Robinson. I mean, everybody can run the arc against Cam Robinson, you know, everybody. We saw Derek Barnett do it, you know. So, like, right. and we've, we've seen that it's a constant thing. He He, do, he has issues with, and I don't know why he's still the top OT, but whatever. I mean, he has issues uh, with speed, explosiveness, fluidity. I'm not sure he's the best tackle on offensive tackle on his team. I mean, I, okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, no, sure. I mean, you, you could. I mean, that's easy to say because it, he he doesn't perform well. What he does do well is run blocking. You know, like, and that's the thing about Alabama is they are a team that, despite that flaw, they're going to run the football. The reason they have athletic quarterback or kind of why I think they went with him was because they figured, okay, our offensive line does have this issue. So having an athletic quarterback can mitigate some of those issues. You know, he can move a little more, he can buy some time, stuff like that. Even though Saban doesn't want that to happen, he at least acknowledges that, yeah, we're, we're going to need a guy who at least can extend some plays and stuff. And he's done that to a certain extent. As I say, but that's really the thing is, is pass rush is how you get them. But, how do you, you know, how, pass rush is great, but it's if you take the LSU approach of just ramming them to death and then passing, like it's not effective. Like you're not going to get much of a pass rush because you're constantly having to stop the run. Um, and I think that that's kind of where, to me, defensively speaking, teams like Michigan and teams um, like Washington, well, actually Washington and Ohio State are the teams I'm most worried about with that. I think Michigan might hold up a little bit better on defense against the run, um, but it's still a concern with, with all those teams that Alabama may just line it up and give the ball to their running backs, you know, 75% of the time and just kind of ram it, ram it, ram it type of stuff. And that's that's the issue, obviously, because they can cover, they can cover up the weaknesses, basically. Like, Alabama's not you have to force Alabama to get essentially have to force Alabama to, to have to come from behind. You know, you have to get up 14 points on them, um, you know, 14 to nothing or something like that, you know, to, to kind of get them off their, off their game and, and try to get them to pass more and then make mistakes. And that's, that's really, again, that all comes back to a little bit of luck. Like you have to, you have to get a little lucky where you have a really good start and then capitalize on everything that comes after that. And that that's the real thing because again it's it's just like fundamentals and game planning is going to win out. Like you're not you're not going to 
trick Alabama. You know, you're not you're not going to do that. So you, you have to man up, if you will. You know, yeah. like you have to be ready to capitalize on everything that comes your way and not turn the football over. And and to me, Washington's proved they don't turn. I mean, Jake Browning right now is the most the least turnover prone quarterback in all college football. You know, he's, he is, I mean, I think right now, if I was actually looking at it, yeah, he has a, a 11.5 to one touchdown to interception ratio. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty good. Which is pretty good. <laughs> so they're not turning the football over when it comes to the, when it comes to that. So, um, and the same thing goes with JC Barrett and the state, like the only reason I like Ohio State is because Barrett, Although you don't trust Barrett, I kind of do just because I felt like his his pass protection improve is a his a pocket presence improved this year a lot to where if Alabama's getting in the backfield oh, son, I think he can actually deal with I that. Actually, I didn't trust JT Barrett. I'm not sold on their running game. Oh, well, I, I agree, but it's I mean, yeah, I mean it's lots of sweeps and stuff like that. That's why. You know, when Curtis Samuel was like, he's on pace to, you know, get 1,000 yards rushing, 1,000 yards receiving, well, not, any, not anymore, but, um, you know, unless something happens. Because but wait, it's, it's very – talking about him like he's a running back, and he's not. Oh. <laughs> I mean, not really. Well, it's, it's, seen, a, it's, a, it's sweeps and, you know – and I mean, I've seen people put him in their like running that. back rankings as if he were an actual running back. It's like putting Percy Harvin or – Dexter McCluster or whatever in your running back rankings. Yeah. I mean, it's just bizarre. If it's like saying Ezekiel Elliott or is in your wide receiver rankings because he catches the ball or, a lot, or Tavon Austin is is in your running back rankings because he runs the football. Like right. it's all these plays. I mean, these, these plays are on sweeps or on you know misdirection plays. You know, they're not necessarily true grit. You know, line. You know, kind of. St- I mean, it's it's. You know, it's not traditional running run plays. It's a lot of misdirection and stuff where you're handing the wire, you know, handing the wire receiver the ball, and you know, stuff like that. So, um, you know, jet sweeps and stuff like that. So, like it's, you know, he's more of a pass. You know, he's more of a receiver than he is an actual, you know, running back. Right. But, well, I mean, in their offense, he is playing the H back position. Now, obviously, he's not an H back in the sense of Clint Didier, you know, or those guys in. Or Donnie Warren back in the, uh, you know, the old Washington offense. But it's, to me, it's really, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Strange um, how people are acting as if he's, like I said, some people are treating him like he's an actual uh, real running back. And it makes you wonder if they've not watched the way he plays football. Well, they just look at the sweeps and stuff where he's, you know, outrunning people. And uh-huh. stuff like yeah, which is cool. So Percy Harvin did running back. back too. Did, was Percy Harvin a running back? You mentioned Tavon Austin. Was Tavon Austin a running back? No, he's a, he's a wide receiver. Although some people still contend that he's a, he's a running back. But, you know, those people aren't around anymore i guess but, um, <laughs> they kind of disappeared uh you know without a trace but yeah um no I, I i mean yeah but i don't know people just people people do what people do so you know they they come to it's like anything else you know they just look at see they're the real box score scouts to see there you go you know so right in terms of just looking at numbers and stuff and coming to a conclusion based on numbers. 
um, which is, you know, happens at times. But I don't know. It's like people comparing. It's like I've I've heard a lot of people, like there was one thing too where somebody was like, oh, Solomon Thomas is better than Derek Barnett because of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, Solomon Thomas is is a completely different player from Derek. Like Solomon Thomas is a five-sec. Derek Barnett is an edge rusher. Like those are... Two different species of creature, right? Things, you know, like you can't can't do that comparison. <laughs> like, why he did? So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of odd, but yeah, yeah. So here's my next sort of bone of contention, and then we'll move on to other teams who are not teams that may necessarily be in line to try to beat uh, what do you call it, uh, Alabama, because. There's only a handful of teams, as you pointed out, I think, accurately, that even have a chance of, like I said, really making it interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's it's gotten to that point, and I'd love to be wrong because I I like I love to see, you know, competitiveness and parity and all that stuff that makes it interesting to watch the games. But at this moment, <laughs> it's hard to think of too many teams that would even, as you said, even make it compelling so sticking with the SEC and the teams that are not Alabama (laughs) right the the teams that are not Alabama because there are some teams in the SEC that are not Alabama and one of them will also have to face Alabama at some point on the field of you know open conflict or whatever, you know, they'll have to play them in a championship game. So, so one, who do, you, who do you, who think, you think, think that team will be, and then what can they do to, you know, make it interesting? Oh, you, you mean the teams that haven't uh, I mean, they'll have to play the SEC team in the East that will have to play them in a championship game. So they have right. those in the SEC. Well, they just beat them, so... Um, <laughs> Hmm. I mean, Texas A&M is, the, <laughs> I mean, Texas A&M the, is next week. You know, it's this week mm-hmm. actually. So that's right. that's that's an interesting matchup. Just because, again, um, defensively speaking, they they have pass rushers that. I mean, come on, Miles Garrett versus Cam Robinson. Come on. Yikes. Come on. <laughs> you know what's what's going to happen? So. Like, that's the thing. It, it, but it also would come down to Deshaun Hall, too. Uh, you know, the other guy, either the other person, you know, the, the opposite, the, the wingman, uh, you know, that guy, uh, who right. will also need to come up big as well uh, because they are going to try to get stuff to go the other direction. They are going to try to throw Cam Robinson and O.J. Howard and the running back at Miles Garrett if they're in pass, you know, rollouts and stuff like that, so they go away from Miles Garrett. Uh, so Deshaun Hall definitely has to step up. The secondary, though, of Texas A&M, like this, this is my big, my big issue with the with the secondary Texas A&M. Uh, Justin Evans is a guy that that's gotten a lot of um, hype and, and stuff like that uh, over over this year, and he has been productive, but he his like hip flexibility, like he plays really high, Bill. Like really, sort of like he's getting tackles, but it's 
it's like tackles where I, I wonder if a stronger running back, you know, was to, was to kind of, you know, get out of those sort of things. I mean, because he is a guy who has range. Um, he is usually in the, in the right place at the right time. But I just worry about overall flexibility with him because he's not the most flexible guy. And uh, sometimes I've seen issues with him being able to bring guys down um, because of that, because he's not he's, he's losing a lot of power because of that uh, to get guys down. Uh, and Armani Watts is the other guy who, you know, can make some plays on the ball and stuff like that. But there, there's some games where he looked a little lackadaisical in coverage where he wasn't quite, you know, diagnosing things as fast as possible. And as far as the linebackers go at Texas a they are probably the most cliche college football linebackers, spready, undersized, like they're, you know, can't, like I said, cannon fodder, like that's those guys. Um, so it's, re- it's really, I mean, again, it comes down to offense. And I think you have to, you have to just hope and pray that that uh, Trevor Knight doesn't mess up, uh, that Trevor Knight doesn't have erratic passes, which has been kind of a common theme with him this year to a certain extent. Uh, Josh Reynolds has to step up, and uh, and everybody else has to step up. I mean, they and they do have some a, a lot of a lot of what I don't quite like about Texas and his offense is, is they do try to do a lot of short kind of wheel route kind of st- like obvious stuff where mm-hmm. you know where the ball is going. You know that he's coming into your area. So you know it's going to be a short pass. You know it's going to right to him. So I just kind of worry about the other wide receivers, I guess. The wide receivers that aren't aren't very good at uh, being deceptive and, and are not very good at, you know, varying kind of what they're doing uh, and ending up with problems because of, because of that result. But, yeah, that's – that's going to be a thing. But as far as the SEC East, I mean, again, they just face Tennessee and they whoop Tennessee. When they yeah. play them again, it, when they play them again in the, in the SEC championship game, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get whooped again. Like, it's, <laughs> that's, no, nothing's going to change in that factor. Tennessee was always an overrated football team. They got lucky against Florida. They got lucky again, lucky against a lot of teams because they were down by points. I mean, they they were in games where they were down by 14 points, 21 points, where statistically speaking, according to ESPN and other people, I mean, just facts, when you get down by 14 points, you have less of a chance of winning because, you know, you're down by 14 points. But they got lucky because they fought back and they did all this kind of stuff and they were able to capitalize on things. And, of course, going up against Florida with Del Rio down and Florida honestly having a lot of hubris going into the game like, hey, we've beaten you guys consistently and over and over again, you know, like that sort of stuff and not really taking Tennessee seriously. And then they just kind of let the game get out of here. And then Josh Dobbs sort of Tebow-esque, you know, God coming down and putting the ball in places that you're like, really, that he made that throw? But, yeah, so – I mean, Tennessee's not for real. You know, I don't know how much I have to keep telling people that, but it's a team that's getting by on a lot of miraculous things, and the miracles ran out against Alabama. <laughs> you know, yeah. so indeed, it, it's not going to happen again. Uh, I, I, I don't really see any. I mean, in the SEC East, 
specifically, I mean, Florida, I think is, I don't think they're done, but I don't quite think they're going to end up being the, in the championship game because they already lost to Tennessee. So I don't, I, you know, I'm not quite up on all the tiebreaker stuff, but I just don't think that's going to happen because of that. And Kentucky, I mean, come on, that ain't going to happen. Georgia, yeah. Georgia ain't going to happen. Right. And South Georgia's Carolina a year and Missouri, or two away, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And 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 Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Missouri, they're out of the game, really. I mean, you know, South <laughs> right. Carolina already has four losses. Missouri already Yikes. has four losses. Yikes. And Vanderbilt mm-hmm. already has four losses. So the only team wow. that the, the team that the team that Alabama is going to face. Like Florida could be in the champ if if Florida wins out. Like let's say theoretically Florida wins out the rest of the way, and Tennessee drops a couple more games, which could happen because it's Tennessee we're talking about. Like again, the, this could be a downward spiral type of type of uh, thing. And Florida also got kind of lucky because they didn't have to play LSU, so that's another you know positive you know because of uh, stuff. But Florida, I mean, the rest of the way, they have Georgia, Arkansas, South Carolina, Presbyterian, hmm. and Florida State. Um, hmm. All of those games, to me, are winnable. Right. Games. Only um, two of them really scare me, in fact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two where it, it could go either way, but they're winnable. Like, you, you could theoretically right. see Florida getting hot and finishing out all those games and or maybe dropping one of those games. Um, if you will, in terms of like Arkansas is definitely going to be probably one of the tougher ones, you know, that they have right. to uh, get around because, you know, they're, they're a good team this year. Tennessee's rest of their schedule is also really winnable because they play South Carolina, Tennessee Tech, Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt. So those are all winnable. So right. it's really so. a matter of who messes up. You <laughs> know? That's the way to play it. It's really a matter and, of who messes up. Okay, Kentucky, who I I know we say this every year, but but can Kentucky sort of miraculously put together a game plan and take down Tennessee? You know, it's possible. You know, possible. Missouri, Missouri could do that, uh, and Vanderbilt could do that. You know, so but at at this point, I just think it's either Tennessee or Florida, and Tennessee they already got whooped. Florida. I mean, Florida would hmm, – I just don't think Florida would, would do much either. Just just because on defense they have a relatively – I think their secondary is a little overrated because, again, I, I think Tabor is a zone corner who doesn't get tested a ton in, in man coverage a lot. and he's, he's in my top five, but he's yeah. not my number one, my number two, or my number three. So – Right. I, mean, I agree that I think he does certain things well. I don't think he does everything well. Right. And that that's kind of, you know, the main point. And then the other guy on the other side, Quincy, is, I mean, you know, he's good. But, like, I, I've heard a lot of, like, top ten talk with him. And I don't, like, top ten of the draft sort of what? stuff with him. And I just think that's because I was gonna they say, only he's watch a top SEC. ten corner. But then you said top ten of the draft and then I had to – Recollect yeah. my thoughts. <laughs> Wait, well, what? That's happened. 
I don't know if there's a single who... corner in this entire draft map that have in the top ten. Even my number one oh. corner, I have like number fourteen overall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that, but I'm just saying that there have been people who have a shall I say SEC bent who <laughs> okay, have him it. as a top ten cornerback because of a couple times where he made some big plays against Kentucky and stuff like that. So, well, if this guy ever saw Jordan Lewis, I suppose we just dealt his little bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So because he could put up a couple of plays, you know, two three plays in a season that would make you think he's the greatest quarter of all time. If you're going by that, pretty much. So like, so that's really it. Like Florida is, I mean, offensively speaking, I just don't think they have enough juice. Also, so like defensively speaking, I really don't like their defensive. I mean, there, there's been a lot of talk about Florida's defensive line in terms of like, well, Joey Ivy and uh, Caleb Brantley and all these other sort of guys. Brian I Cox Jr. Thing. or whatever his name is. Right. Yes, right. Brian Cox Stiffy, that guy. Yeah. So yeah. those guys aren't very good. I mean, Caleb Brantley is definitely explosive, but he doesn't quite. Again, he's another one of those types of three techs without a brain type of guys that I don't quite like that much. Yes, um, right. And Florida seems to produce a lot of those guys, actually. Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, but, like, I just don't quite see the defensive line stopping the run that much. And it just comes back to offense. Florida, I like Antonio Callaway. I like, you know, his, his Powell there, too. He's kind of an interesting sort of slot kind of uh, wide receiver. But they are very – I mean, they're not very deceptive in what they do. And running back-wise, it's a committee thing. And you know how I am with committees. You're not really so, a fan, yes. Right. <laughs> so, but it's a committee of these sort of solid but not spectacular running backs. Like, well, this is that how most committees work. I mean, if you have somebody who's spectacular, you don't really ha- have a committee, or you shouldn't. Well, exactly. But, like, they're not – you're not going to be afraid of their running backs. They're not. How the heck are we going to stop? Yeah, exactly. You're not thinking, oh, my God, how are we going to stop? What are we going to do? How are we going to? I mean, if Alabama plays them, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to take away Antonio Callaway and and go from there. But that's the basic point is that if you're going to beat – to me, if you're going to beat Alabama, you have to have wide receivers that – are deceptive in what they do, that try to set up their cornerbacks and try to, you know, try to, like, that's how you beat, to just, and, and you may not beat them. That's the thing. You may not beat them even if they are that because they may be so, they may live up to the hype, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But none of what Florida provides is, is wide receivers that are incredibly deceptive, incredibly, you know, I mean, John Dre Goolsby, the tight end there, I like, but he's not very, deceptive. I mean, it, he's, not really that deceptive in what he does. So they don't quite have the wide receivers to really give them fits, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, and neither does Tennessee, who is the Josh Malone show. And as you know, Bill, like, I don't, I don't see it with, with Malone at all. I can see, I can see why when he was in high school, basically, for, please pardon the expression, teabagging five, eight, 170 pound high school corners on a weekly basis 
why people fell in love. But I can also see that... That was high school, though. I Yes, I was trying to... That was my next... <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. Right. That, that was high school. So my my contention would be that that was certainly potential that he could become a, a very good collegiate wide receiver. As of this moment, he is just that, a potentially good wide receiver at the collegiate level. As of this very moment, Thomas Spurback is a better collegiate wide receiver. Well, there's numerous, you know, people that are better wide receivers. Uh, it's this whole Jehu Chesson thing all over again. But, um, yeah, I he just isn't, again, Malone is, he's just a, every, every type of play I've seen him make, it's been mostly him running a nine route and then out, out leaping or out jumping yeah. a, a, a short cornerback. And that you is know. his high school career in a nutshell. If you watch his high school tape, it's 38 times a year doing that, you know, for 20 sub odd yards a catch. And so he looks, you know, like a young God because like I said, he's, you know, teabagging for lack of a better expression, sub five, 870 pound uh, high school quarterback. Right, but you see you a lot of. You can't count on that all the time anymore. Do you so. see a lot of deception in what he does? No. Do you see a, you know, a really good outside or inside release? No. Do you see a varying amount of, like, intermediate routes? No. So I just don't, don't get it. You know, in terms of the love and admiration, I guess, of Mr. Josh Malone. But he ain't, you know, he's just the type of guy where, like, Alabama's not going to be afraid of Josh Malone. That's not. No. And they weren't, obviously. It's also true. (laughs) Nothing happened. So they already faced it. So, like, I don't don't see anybody in the SEC messing stuff up for Alabama. Like, that's not. I I agree. This is one of those years where, unless Alabama just, just doesn't show up one week. I mean, that's the only way I could see it, quite frankly. The SEC, I, I know I've said this before, but the SEC as a whole, as a conference, is not head and shoulders above the Pac-12 or the well, maybe still the Big 12, but not the Pac-12, not the ACC, certainly not the ACC. And one could contend, or even the Big 10, one could contend that in terms of total strength of the conference, they're in a three-way tie, perhaps, with the ACC and the Big Ten. Well, as you know, I have the Big Ten over them, but uh, right, and that could also count. be argued, right, right, top to bottom. You know, if you if you had these teams play, they would, you know, do stuff. To, to me, I just think the talent overall is, big, is the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten. I think we're going to be talking about a Big Ten bias eventually, so I'm trying to say, uh, eventually, <laughs> because it it just, I think the better players are in the Big Ten, I think the better coaching, just by the coaches that are there, overall, if you, you have Urban Meyer, you have Jim Harbaugh, you know, you have uh, Michigan State's coach, I mean, like, you have those guys, I mean, it's kind of a wash, of course, but I just feel like the Big Ten overall has been more competitive 
than the SEC, and, and it's just proved evident by the fact that Alabama's just rolling through the competition, which just kind of proves more to the fact that their competition isn't really that great. And it is incumbent upon me to say this because this is a team sort of like with Washington where I was very much a doubter. I'm starting to come around. I'm still at 100% ready to buy, but I'm starting to come around a little bit on Nebraska. Uh, I still think they have some glaring weaknesses uh, that the right team will exploit to good effect, and they'll probably lose a couple of games, you know, down the stretch. But that being said, they're way better than I thought, than I thought they'd be. I thought they were a 7-8-win team going into the season, and, of course, that could possibly still happen if they could just, you know, stop winning altogether, but I doubt it. They're not a threat, I think, to win the uh, the Big Ten, so obviously not a threat to <laughs> to face Alabama. But looking at Nebraska, the situation Nebraska's in, is there a way they could at least make their way to the Big Ten championship game? Hmm. Think about that for a second. Um, hmm. See something about the schedule because I mean, you know, they're undefeated right now. Um, I think we'll find out after Wisconsin Ohio State. Yes, exactly. Those are two losses I see them <laughs> picking up in short order. They play, but they play Purdue, which is yes, that that should be a win. Purdue. Yes, right. uh, and then of course they face Wisconsin at was at they wow wow yeah but no at matter where you face Wisconsin that's tough but right I agree play them can't Randall right so they're on the road against these teams wow yes correct wow. yes so <laughs> Hence, I just said I see them picking up two two losses in short order but so I would say this is what I would really say is if they beat Wisconsin and they beat Ohio State and win out the rest of the way, yeah, they'll be in the Big Ten Championship. But they're going to earn that. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, they will. That's they will very much earned it. <laughs> I mean, even if they split, they will have earned. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, let's see. Let's think about this. I mean, you know, split, maybe it doesn't put them. I'm trying to think what a split would do for them. If they beat one and not the other, if they lost to Wisconsin and beat Ohio State, I'm trying to think of that if they might still be playing for half, you know, still representing their half of the conference. So I wonder if the West, I guess, is what they are. Actually, if they beat Wisconsin. Or the other way around. And lose to Ohio State. Ohio State, right. That's what I meant to say. That would do it. They could still represent the West. Right, exactly. Right. Yes. But they'd have to beat Wisconsin. Which isn't impossible. I, I don't see it happening. No. Not impossible. <laughs> I mean it's it's definitely gonna be a fairly even I mean to me at least. I think it's it's gonna be like a one touchdown game, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So like right. it's gonna be one of the games where it's gonna kinda go either way. It's just who comes to play and stuff like that. Despite right. the Wisconsinian people that, again, they'll find you and they will troll you, you know. So, um, but yeah, that's that's definitely the game 
that is most important. If they lose Ohio State, doesn't really, at least to me, I don't think it really does. It matters that much if they went out. So, like, that's really what they have to do. They have to beat Wisconsin. And then they have to lose to Ohio State and then just win out. And then they'll play Ohio State again. Or they'll play Michigan. That might be a better thing, too. If if, if Michigan <laughs> takes out Ohio State, then Michigan will be the team. And then Nebraska might have a better chance against Michigan. Although I still think Michigan will win, but they'll at least have a better chance. Right. Right. Makes sense. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Let's take a quick look at the undefeated. Uh, Boise, but they're in the Mountain West. No matter what they do, nobody will ever care. Uh, there's still two undefeated in the Big 12. Obviously, that will change very, very soon since they will play each other. Uh, let's see. But at least to this moment, uh, you know, Baylor, with, of course, one of the softest non-conference schedules out there, is undefeated. And, you know, people have not a lot of respect for it, but it's still the facts. They are undefeated. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see who else is still undefeated. Uh, Washington, for the aforementioned Washington, Ohio State, Michigan. Uh, let's see. Right, Clemson, Clemson's Clemson, undefeated. Right. Baylor, West Virginia. Right. West Virginia. Well, let's Michigan. stick with Baylor, West Virginia for a second. Do you give either of them? No, I, I'm guessing no. <laughs> I'm guessing. Oh, well, uh, the Big Twelve doesn't have a uh, championship yeah. game. Yeah. yeah so you, neither of them, them, right? Neither of them has a chance in your mind to even make it. I mean, it would take well, a lot of them to even make it to the. Here's the thing. Here, here's the thing, though. Um, okay. West Virginia plays Baylor. That's the last game of the year. Right. So, which is in essence a Big Twelve championship game. Right. Literally, that's a Big Twelve championship game. So there you go. You got one. You know, sort of by scheduling standards. So yeah, I think that would be the sort of thing. As I said before, I just think that the playoff committee, even if the Baylor went undefeated, even with, if West Virginia went undefeated, they would just go, well, it's the Big 12, and they're down this year for whatever reason, you know. <laughs> Maybe. Right. But um, but I do think Baylor – to me, Baylor is a legit team. I mean, they have talent on defense. They have talent on offense. Yep. Um, it is a – They don't turn the ball over a lot, which is one ready, of the uh... – Right. Turn the football over a lot. Um, it's just fundamentals, man. I mean, you know, talk to Tom Herman. He knows. So, like, it's, you don't turn right. the football over and you score more points, you usually win. Uh, and, yeah, they're doing that. Uh, which right. is kind of, when you think about it, it's like, well, that makes sense. You know, like, yeah, that's, that's you know, it, it's 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 a, it's a, it's just a fact is all I would say. is, is And it's at the NFL level and the college football level. That's why that's why coaches harp on it all the time. But yeah, Baylor doesn't yep. turn the football over that much. West Virginia doesn't either. Um, I only have misgivings about West Virginia just because I I don't think they quite have the defensive, you know, players that Baylor has. And offensively speaking, I don't, I don't think they have quite the same offensive part. Yeah, I I, I agree. <laughs> they have three or 
four really good offensive players. And, you know, I think Skylar Howard is an interesting sort of developmental West Coasty quarterback prospect. Uh, they have Shelton Gibson is going to be somebody's, you know, uh, Eddie Royal someday. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Kevin White's little brother. What's his name again? Uh, is going to be, you know, somebody's Cordell Patterson one day. No, I'm exaggerating. I mean, he's, he's not he's not that bad. Um, but, I mean, he'll be an NFL wide receiver uh, who will hopefully pick up on more of the subtleties to the position. But he's like his brother. He has some, He's not as big and I don't think quite as fast, but he does have some, you know, natural physical skills. He's pretty quick and pretty fast, and uh, his hands themselves are actually pretty good. Uh, he just needs to – there's a lot for him to still learn about the finer points of playing the position. Once again, much like with his brother. But uh, – and I like the running backs. Uh, the the big one and the little one, Russell Shell and um, little number 25, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but who's pretty darn good too. For me, the issue comes, they run the ball reasonably well, especially for, you know, we just talked about what kind of team they are. People always say, well, you know, air raid teams, they can't run the football. And Holgerson has, you know, changed over his years as a, as a play caller. They, I mean, I can be mistaken for Wisconsin and Alabama anytime soon, but they run the ball better than they have in the past, much better, in fact, dramatically better. I think it's probably the biggest difference between this version of, of West Virginia and some of Holgerson's early West Virginia teams or his time you know, in place at, at other schools when he was a play caller was that he believes in the run. Uh, I wouldn't say he leans on the run, but he believes in it. He, he uses it to set things up. He uses it to uh, end, yeah, I mean, even though it's not the same way these other teams we talked about earlier beat on you, he will wear on you a little bit. He will pick a point in a sustained drive where lots of throwing the ball out to the edges, which, let's be honest, those wide receiver screens are kind of running plays too anyway. I mean, they're those crack screens and those jailbreaks. I mean, those are long hands. Those are running plays. Oh, they are. <laughs> basically running plays, right? They're basically yeah, running plays Mike too. Leach. I mean, Mike Leach, that's, his running plays are that, you know. I don't have the exact quote, but it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that's part of sustaining, you know, it's a five-yard play, six-yard play, like they're running plays. It's just their screen passes, you know. Right. It just so happens that I'm getting to this via the quarterback throwing the football. (laughs) But the fundamentals, the blocking, all the things that everybody is doing are closer to the things you do on a run play than you would do on a down-the-field passing play anyway. So, you know. Exactly. Right, and and it's also a running play to where you can you can either execute it with blocking, literally, you know, where the wire receivers are, 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 you know, blocking, or you could also execute it with opening up that space to, in a way, like you're not, you're not blocking, but you're having the wide receivers take the coverage away, opening a space in that area, and then that that's that five-yard play. So it creates the area of open space to which, you know, a play can, you know, can be made in that area. So um, in terms of, in terms of that, so it's, 
it's it's sort of like you can either do it the power way or you could do it i'm not gonna say it's a finesse way but the way of setting stuff up so that that space is created and then you take advantage of that space so you always get a four yard five yard play right well the the military term is war of maneuver versus war of position when you're wisconsin or alabama or lsu you want to fight a war of position, not a war of maneuver. When you are Baylor or Texas Tech or West Virginia, even 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 when you are running the football or, or Washington State, even when you are running the football, it's essentially a war of maneuver. You're creating whatever opportunity based on quickness of movement as opposed to gathering and holding a particular position at the point of attack. Exactly. And it works. You know, <laughs> both both of them can work. Both yeah, work. Correct. Yeah. But yeah, West Virginia is, and I think in terms of their offensive line, like I told you, Tyler Orlovsky is a guy at center, I think, it is somebody I think people will probably get more familiar with. But, right. uh, you know, they have offensive linemen that, that can move people. And um, it it is the sort of, Baylor's still kind of, you know, you know, in terms of power spread sort of stuff. But I think West Virginia this year, for whatever reason, is a little better of an example of that to me, at least. Just just because I think their right. their line is a little bit more powerful, a little bit more to get more, a little bit more movement. Although I do like Kyle Fuller at, at Baylor. It's Kyle Fuller and a bunch of dudes, you know, at least from what <laughs> I've seen so far. Uh, well, right. at least West Virginia, it's Orlovsky, and then they they have a couple other guys, you know, there that I've seen that have gotten some good push um, in their in the run game. So it's you know they they do do that better. It's just I just don't quite see the overall package. I, you know, defensively, I think Baylor is really underrated. They're not the best. Like they're not going to like dominate people, but they do have. They're, they're, but they're disciplined, and they get in the right place at the right time, and they tackle consistently, which is something a lot of defenses don't do, and they do that. So they're able to stop teams more consistently. Um, and then West Virginia, who I think has some underrated people on defense too, I, I just feel like uh, they're not quite the same types of uh, guys. Hmm. Okay. So – we just sort of ran through some undefeated. And many of them, well, not many of them, a couple of them, even if they somehow ended up being undefeated, might not even get a chance. I mean, Boise obviously being an obvious example because they've done it before. They've been left with, you know, with no dance, you know, no, no ticket to the dance, even though they've been undefeated before. Now, West Virginia presents an interesting case study because, we haven't seen – we've seen the Big 12 get snubbed, but it wasn't because the teams that had been Baylor in the past had a chance to be that question mark, so they always managed to pick up a, a loss somewhere. If either Baylor or West Virginia – I think you and I are both leaning West Virginia as the Big 12 team with the best chance to, to emerge undefeated. If West Virginia is undefeated, let's assume that Alabama also escapes unscathed. We have two undefeated teams. I think Clemson picks up a loss somewhere. So, but Clemson will probably still make it, assuming they win the ACG championship. And it's going to be probably either, either 
you know, Louisville or, or Clemson. Hmm. So Louisville or Clemson is, is in. Well, probably. Well, you go ahead. Yeah, please, go ahead. Well, let's say this happens. So Clemson, rest of their schedule, they have Florida State this week. Wow, there's a lot of really good games this week. Um, so they got, well, not next week, actually, October 29th. So, but yeah, uh, Clemson plays in Florida State. That's I I can't trust Florida State, but I do know that they have offensive pieces to to get stuff done. Um, then they play Syracuse, which I think is a win, but it might be interesting. Pittsburgh, I think, might be interesting. Wake Forest might be interesting. South Carolina, I I doubt. I think Clemson beat South Carolina. So like South Carolina will not they, be interesting. So Florida State is probably the interesting game where, like, Jimbo Fisher, you know, does everything Jimbo could possibly have. You know, who knows what he does. But comes up with a game plan. It works. It's effective. They get turnovers and uh, and, and, and do their thing, and then they then they beat Clemson. That's, that's possible. Will it happen? Well, we don't know. I mean, the biggest issue at Florida State is that they turn the football over too much on, on with the quarterback there. Uh, as well. So there's stuff there that's kind of an issue. And then you, it, but, but here's the thing is if North Carolina ends up in the ACC championship game, then things get interesting in terms of uh, if North Carolina takes down Clemson. North Carolina um, because a wild card. <laughs> yeah. They're a wild card. I, I get that, but like that—that that would be what you would do. Like if you look at North Carolina right now, um, they are—you know—they're five and two, and uh, Pittsburgh—they beat you know head to head. Virginia Tech—they lost in a hurricane, which I still think is—you know—to me, to me, I felt like it was—it was more. Again, I was more thinking it was just kind of a fluke because I saw the game and it was like crazy weather, like it. It's, you know, it's it's something where, like, the wet ball drill and stuff like that, I guess they just weren't really prepared uh, for that type of a game. Um, it didn't really run the football either, which I, which I was kind of like, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was odd, their game plan. And they were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to throw the football in this weather. I'm like, eh, I don't think you should do that. But, like, North Carolina, rest of the way, uh, they have Virginia, they have Georgia Tech, they have Duke, the Citadel, and then North Carolina State. I ain't gonna lie. I mean, there's some toughies. I mean, Duke is a team that could surprise and beat them. Uh, North Carolina State is a team that could surprise and beat them. But thankfully, they don't play Louisville. So, uh, so that's the sort of thing where Clemson will kind of prevent Louisville if they win out. If Clemson goes undefeated, uh, then. Louisville will be kind of out of the equation in the ACC championship game because they're not, you know, they're not in the same conference as North Carolina. Um, so there's an opportunity there for North Carolina to be in the in the ACC championship game. And I think they're probably the best team, you know, at least that's, that's equipped to, uh, to deal with, with them if, if North Carolina wins out, uh, which, again, North Carolina State is the team I think could beat them. And uh, like I said, Duke is a team that I think could beat North Carolina on the way. So they just have to win those games. And like you said, 
they're a wild card, so it's kind of hard to trust in terms of that. But but that's kind of how I feel on that. And Virginia Tech is the other team where, like, if they go undefeated, they could push North Carolina out just because of that head-to-head matchup where they won. Um, but they have to play Miami. They have to play Pittsburgh, Duke, Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, Virginia. So, like, they they at least have three tougher matchups. I mean, Miami's a team that could beat them. Pitts, you know, Duke is a team that could that could beat them. And, uh, and Notre Dame, yeah, it's kind of iffy because Notre Dame is just kind of a mess this year. But like, there's a little kind of a mess. Yeah. There's there's a there's at least some some things. There's more stuff there, I guess, to where the, if Virginia Tech gets a loss at some point in those games, North Carolina wins out, which they could, but you never know. So like, I think it might come down to Virginia Tech and North Carolina, and then whoever wins, which I would hope would be North Carolina. Although Virginia Tech could give Clemson issues too in terms of uh, um, their their uh, offense because they have gotten better from the Tennessee game where things were just kind of a mess. But that's the only team I really think takes down Clemson is, is Florida State and then whoever's in the ACC championship game. And um, I think both of them have a shot because I, I think that even though Clemson's undefeated, I, I still have issues, misgivings about uh, the fact of how many turnovers they throw and the fact that Deshaun Watson is playing, how he's playing, um, and, and, you know, those those, uh, sorts of things. Yeah, I – Virginia Tech and Carolina, if you could somehow, you know, take the best parts of those two teams, that's a team that would probably be able to beat Louisville or beat Clemson because – there are individually things on each of those two teams that you really, really like, and even collective things on each of those teams you really, really like. But they just each of those teams also has at least one or two things that is a, a genuine problem. <laughs> now, young Mr. Evans, uh, uh, Jared Evans, the quarterback at Virginia Tech, gives them something they haven't had you know, since the early days of Logan Thomas, I guess, a guy who is able to I mean, obviously make plays in the running game with his feet, uh, has a strong enough arm that there's almost no part of the field he can't touch, and has shown some deep ball accuracy. Now he's also shown some real inconsistency in terms of ball placement as well. But uh, this is his first year as a starter. He's a, you know, a guy that's coming from junior college ranks. So the hope is that they can work with him and develop him. Justin Puente obviously is a guy that's known amongst other things as a QB guru. So the assumption is that next year he'll come back and be be much better. The assumption for seemingly everyone on the planet is that Deshaun Watson will be in the NFL next year. So uh, he won't get a chance to work on some of these things, at least not at the collegiate level. But, uh, you know, that's that's an open question. That's an open question to see what will become of a guy like uh, like Deshaun Watson because, Clemson leans on him fairly heavily, especially now that Wayne Gallman. I mean, I saw the the hit he took. I mean, I they, you know, the term to yeah. use head injury. I, I mean, I'm, I'd be shocked if it wasn't a fairly significant concussion he suffered. I mean, that that looked like classic. I mean, I'm no doctor, obviously, but if you watch people get concussions before, it looks like that. That's the yep. picture of a concussion. And usually, mm-hmm. I mean, from the looks of it, a reasonably significant one. So. 
because he looked like he was at least temporarily unconscious to me. Complete with the whole, you know, Frankenstein arm thing, you know, the I mean, all, all the sort of classic uh, hallmarks of a fairly significant concussion. I'm hoping I'm wrong. I would love for him to be good to go, uh, you know, next week and all that good stuff. But it looked bad. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And, and yeah. he he hasn't quite been a guy they really have, um, I mean, relied on. I mean, they've right. been pushing Deshaun Watson to be a bigger part of the running game. They've been pushing Deshaun Watson to be the guy there. They haven't been leaning on Gallman that much. They haven't been – and Gallman, quite frankly, hasn't really been – I know I may get flack with the draft order people, but – you know, he, he has shown to be a, a decent, you know, option at running back, but he's not exactly a guy who's shown that he can carry the load and, you know, and consistently be a really dynamic player 100% in games, you know, where a lot of times, a lot of times his best plays are plays that are, are well executed versus him creating a lot of stuff. So, at least from what I've seen. So, like, even though... Deshaun Watson may go off to college. I, I think Clemson's future is a little iffy, at least to me. Um, I do think that their defensive line, some of their defensive linemen have, uh, at least their really young defensive linemen have, have, have stepped up a bit. But I do have questions about their future in terms of after Deshaun Watson this, and Gallman. Is this the moment for, for Dabo to uh, parlay the success he's had so far to the LSU job or the Texas job or something? Ooh. Ooh, which that that'd be kind of interesting. Maybe it would be fascinating. In fact, <laughs> maybe because why not get out and do that? I mean, because it, it might be the best chance to do that. I mean, it just depends on him. If you like the area, because you know Dabo. I mean, he's like the opposite of Saban. You know, he's about the the love of the game and you know and 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 the whole college football. Right, you know, sort in of the locker room and yeah, right, tradition yeah. and oh, family yeah. and you know all that stuff. Um, right, he knows he's probably the middle names though. of the walk-ons. Yeah, he probably does. <laughs> right, right. He's the guy that knows the middle names of the walk-ons. <laughs> I mean, he's that guy. I get that. But if somebody, as you said, I mean, we're talking well into the mid eight figures, probably or close to it, for a five-year contract at one of these institutions that is desperate for someone who seems to know how to correct. Exactly. And that's what he provides. I mean, that's what he provides is is a passing game. Um, And he might, I mean, Venables may come with him. I don't know, but But, but he'd have to promise to bring Tony Franklin with him, obviously. Yes. That that would be part of the deal. Exactly. But like they, they might do that because I think, Ooh, Man, oh, that'd be that'd be really interesting. I'll, I'll just say that that'd be really interesting because it would provide sort of, sort of a. Uh, I'm not saying Dabo's soft or anything else like that. It's just it, it's people a, it's consider a, him a players' coach. I don't think people right. consider him soft, but he's definitely considered a players' coach. Yes, right. So, so that would be an interesting sort of dynamic to see in the SEC is. LSU with Dabo Sweeney, who's, you know, about the love of the game and the tradition and stuff versus the cold, calculated Sabanomics, if you will, you know, <laughs> <Right>. of football. 
right, the unfeeling monster. Yes. <laughs> but that would, but that would fix, but the, but that would be really interesting because that would fix a lot of stuff. I mean, because yeah. you know he could come in and he would, you know, they have all these five star wide receivers, so they would actually start to get developed more. You know, oh, I mean LSU would if they if they if he comes and brings Tony Franklin with him. LSU immediately becomes a sexy dark horse, you know what I mean? <laughs> to be the team that, yep. that that could knock off Alabama. Exactly. So like like he would come in and you know, all that stuff would be kind of uh helped, if you will. So like that'd be interesting. But I think it might happen just because again, I unless I unless they have something that I don't know about, which may be the case, but I think Deshaun Watson leaves and then you're left with a lot of questions which they could answer, but it would be really intriguing to just go to LSU where you have a sort of, I mean, you know, we already know he's a, he's a good recruiter, you know, so you would have that sort of right. aspect yeah. to it to where he would go there and then he would also have all this sort of stuff and he'd, you know, work with the offense and um, it would be, it, it would be kind of a fat, a fast fix to me just because, yep. The way that again the the LSU's issues is a combination of coaching in terms of the offense and development on offense. So if he just came in and has all these sort of recruits and all the sort of stuff already there, like there's already a base of players that are there, he could just kind of go from there and then bring a guy and just do the whole, you know, cover two sort of stuff in terms of defense and stuff like that. So like that would, you know, that'd work. You know, it'd be Here's radically the, different than LSU, right. though. I mean, it would be radically different, different. But I think they might finally be ready for radically different in LSU. You know, I think that they might have gotten to the point when, because look at even what Alabama is doing, right? I mean, if, there comes a point where you say to yourself, you know, maybe it isn't all about eye formation all the time anymore. Right. So. And he also played Alabama, and people felt like they played him pretty well, too. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he abandoned ship, if you will. Now, now to be fair, though, Clemson pretty much did abandon ship because after they lost Alabama and all the guys started to, their exodus in terms of all their defensive talent left. Right. And right. a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of offenses. Not all the offense, but definitely a good chunk left. So it just like, but but that's the thing is like, you know, again, it takes time to develop stuff. And when you already set a standard of like going to national championships, and then you start to fall back a little bit, you know, that's when you get fired. Usually, that's when you get fired is because you get to that point, and then you have to rebuild, and then people don't like rebuilding. Obviously, like they don't like that at all. Like when when you when you when you're a bad team and then you get to that point, people love you. But when you're a good team and then you take a step back, people hate you. So despite the fact that you built them from one thing to another, but I think that that might be the thing that he might, I, that's, I mean, that would be very, I don't know. I mean, it's all about, you know, what he decides, but that would definitely be something to, to look at if he kind of left for LSU. Cause I don't really think there's much to say. If, if Deshaun Watson leaves, and wait, Gallman's going to leave. Duh, I mean, he's a running back. So, like, he's gone. So, like, they'll 
have a, a lot of question marks that I don't think he can quite answer at the position. Yeah, I mean, if they are a national championship contender again this year, and there's little reason to believe they'll be one again next year, <laughs> which might well be the case, and there's people backing up, almost literally backing up a brink truck in front of your home, I, I imagine he'd have to at least be tempted. And if he does not leave, which he might not, I mean, he does love it there. It is, you know, I mean, he has a strong affinity for the place and the players. It wouldn't be one of those things where it's like a next job Bob thing, like with Petrino or what, where, you know, the guy's always, always got his eye on the next job. It's clearly a thing where it has to be a really good situation for him, but LSU could be a really good situation for him. And because of the reason you just said, I mean, the resources, Clemson has resources, but LSU, I mean, it's a whole other, it's over here. You know, it's, it's, they literally can be mentioned in the same breath as Alabama in terms of resources that can bring you national championships. If you win a national championship at Clemson, like Danny Ford did in 1979, 1980, they remember you forever. That's cool and everything. But there are no multiple national championship winners ever in the history of Clemson's program. And it's un- I won't say it's unlikely it'll ever happen, but it's, it takes a lot for it to happen once. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it happens once, you've done something amazing. It is very difficult to say, oh, I think we could do it again. If you win an national championship LSU, now obviously the pressure's on because they want to do it again, as opposed to simply remember it forever like they would at Clemson, but you actually could do it again at LSU. It's a big difference. It could happen. Exactly, and I agree with that, you know. Yeah, so that's been what, what's been bouncing around my head is what series of events Uh, might it take for this to happen? And yes, I mean, Deshaun Watson obviously is, everyone's assuming he's going to declare. I mean, people, you know, by halfway through last season were putting him into the draft of this year. Yeah. Uh, Dolman, you mentioned some of the defensive players, I guess Tankersley, a few of those. I mean, he may, I mean, he's a, he's got a crackerjack recruiter. He may just sit there and say, I'll just, you know, I'll just reload. Some of those guys are imminently replaceable, even some of the ones who are pretty good. The one, obviously, that scares you a little bit is is the quarterback position. Uh, they certainly have some guys, but you have to wonder if they have anybody else who even vaguely resembles, even this sort of reduced version of Deshaun Watson we're seeing now, if they have someone who can even do that is the big question. Well, it's just because all the defensive players that were part of that team are are all going to be gone. You know, technically right. going to the NFL. Um, the linebackers there that were part of that team are going to the NFL. And, you know, other than the, uh, you know, other than sort of the, like I told you before, Dexter Lawrence, you know, who's kind of an interesting sort of, uh, yes. you know, freshman. Um, yes. Other than that yes. guy, that's, I mean, in terms of really impressive players from from them, uh, you know, he's kind of there. And Vance Smith sticks out a little bit too in the secondary, but not a ton of guys. So, like, it's sort of the thing where, like, if you lose, if you lose the rest of what made you a really good defense, 
you know, one year and then you lose the, then you lose the rest of them. And then on offense, you lose what made you great in Deshaun Watson and Wayne Gallman and Mike Williams. And shoot, even our Davis <laughs> Scott might even declare because we see this every year, Bill, where there's a wide receiver that declares from a big time no program who should declare, right. <laughs> but they do anyways because they feel like, you know, I, well, everybody else I got all the hype. Right. Exactly. I have all this hype on me and you know, I, I can I can go and you know, I'm ready. You know, stuff like that. And and then of course they're not ready, but like, you know, you just can't reason with them. And so that could happen and, and then at that point, yeah. So I think it would just be if he asked Sean Watson and asked him if he stays or not and if he's gonna be honest with him. Uh, I just feel like this whole season I mean, again, I don't know Deshaun Watson, but I just have a feeling that he's going to declare just because, again, it's it's the the way the quarterback class is and stuff like that. At least right now, um, with the media and everything else like that, he's considered to be the consensus number the consensus number one. He's still, number one overall, and was by basically as soon as the national championship game ended, or even during the national championship game last year, it was essentially people had, you know said, oh, well, you know, that's, yeah. Well, he's the best one. He he's played best, Alabama yeah, really well, so he's the best yeah. one. And that's really his biggest saving grace is that even if he has this inconsistent up-and-down season, people are just going to point to the Alabama game and, you know, have that as like a crutch, if you will, you know, saying like, yeah, his season was bad this year, but excuse number one, excuse two, excuse three, you know, all the all whatever excuses they want to say. <laughs> right. And then right. – it, look at the Alabama game. That's the real Deshaun Watson, and then go from there. So, like, that might be the best sort of thing for him is just that, yeah, he played well against Alabama. Trevor Knight did too, but whatever. But, yeah, so, like, there's, <laughs> right, exactly. there's the sort of thing where, like, that – and, as you know, that, the NFL worships – and the media worships Alabama. So, like, that could be the sort of thing where even though he had up-and-down season, he still has that to rest his hat on and, and – and that might be enough to make sure he's still the number one, you know, quarterback, you know, because I just have a feeling that the quarterbacks that I like, like Trubisky, is going to stay in school. Like, I mean, this could be a thing where, like, the the quarterbacks that declare, like, Mahomes comes back, Luke Falk comes back, and Trubisky comes back. Now Deshaun Watson really is the only sort of, quarterback you know what I'm saying so like if those guys go back to school uh or a good chunk of those guys go back to school then Deshaun Watson would be the I don't I don't want to take them that high but if that's the situation that's presented then that then he would want to take advantage of that even though he isn't really the best you know quarterback in the college football at least to me Um, let's see. Let's, let's, let's talk about the last half of the season. I mean, you know, the, we're now in this, I won't say home stretch cause that'd be depressing, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're past the midway point. Uh, we talked about the teams. What are some of the players that you think will come on? You know, maybe they got off to a slightly slow start, but you think we'll finish really strong down the stretch run of the season and maybe establishing people's minds that they are, 
if there are guys who are draft eligible, that guys who might be, you know, top 100 picks, or if there are guys who aren't draft eligible, guys who might put themselves, you know, on the All-American watch list and award watch list for next season, that kind of thing. Right. Well, I know it's a funny place to start with Miles Garrett, but he's kind of had a slow start to the season, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, what, he, what he's been able to do. And some of that's because of what defense is doing to him, but still – I think he might start to get a little bit hotter as, as we get into the playoffs. Like, again, when they play Alabama, I think that's a game where he's going to, like, try to play out of his mind, you know, in that game. So I think as the season goes on, he'll he'll definitely start to kick things into overdrive in terms of getting attention and stuff in the latter half. Because I feel like he – I feel like with him, he even though he's being watched, obviously, this year a lot, I think he's kind of waiting until the latter half when people start to actually – start to zone, you know, zone in on him and pay attention to him in in, in really important games, if you will. So I think that he might. When he has three and a half sacks against Alabama, you're saying that then, (laughs) is that what you're talking about? Well, it's sort of like I'm the best player in the the college. I, I, again, he's my top prospect right now. But I just feel like. Has been mine for quite some time. He needs to – I just feel like he needs to establish, like, Derek Barnett just got a couple sacks against Alabama. So now there's a sort of, like, oh, well, who is – who really is the best SEC pass rusher? You know what I'm saying? Like, you just hear that now. We're like, oh, well, Derek Barnett, you know, he's, he's more productive and, you know, he's more doing this and that. So, like, he goes in that game and just is like, here you go, three and a half sacks, boom, <laughs> boom. <You know? laughs> Give me my money, you know, type of type right. of performance, and it goes there because he could do that. He's the type of guy that could do that. Um, that they will have to game plan, but you know, they'll have to do that to really utilize in the best way possible in terms of getting them good matchups, in terms of moving them around on the line, and in getting them in situations to really take advantage of stuff, and really yeah. try to. And really try to, you know, figure out, okay, like Alabama wants to take me away, but you kind of want to get them to, to mess with them, you know? Like, they're, they're always – everywhere Miles Garrett is, I just know Alabama's going to be like, Miles Garrett is the designated player. Wherever he is, we have to adjust. And he has to do some games, if you will, to kind of get him in position to so that they mess up their adjustments, if you will. Um, so – that that's really what it comes down to, at least to me, is, is him in that particular game. Um, the other guy, who I think might get some more attention, or may not, but hey, he's another guy I mentioned last week, is that Gold Ditch, Colorado State, who I think not a lot of people are familiar with, but I think he he moves really well. I mean, he moves really well for a tackle prospect. Um, I do think. Strength-wise, or you know, he, there is some things about him that might throw some people off and stuff. But I think he moves really well. He has a great story in terms of being a guy who was a survivor from the Aurora, you know, shooting that happened, and being one of the survivors from that. So like, there, there's a great, there's there's potential there to be tapped in terms of like a you know a, a, a personal interest story type of thing. But I just felt like he's he's played really, relatively really well this year in terms of a guy who can move, a guy that can get to the second level, a guy who plays really good posture and and, and good leverage, and decent size. So I think he's going to be a guy that as people 
actually start to watch more film. They might start to, even though Colorado, Colorado State this season has been built a sort of looking hot and then looking not this whole yes. season. Like, I watched them last night. Yes. They've, they've been a team where, where, where they, 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 they either get off to a really good start and they look really good, and then they'll like not look good at all. They'll be, look terrible and get blown out and stuff. So, yeah, uh, but I, I just feel like a guy's like, like Goldich in terms of size. Yeah, they made, they made, their defense made Jeremy McNichol look like Todd Gurley last night. Exactly. So, so, so there's that sort of stuff. I think another guy that that's going to get uh, more hot as the season goes on is, you know, I did all my production stuff. A, a linebacker that came up was Jack Cece or Cehe at Wisconsin. I didn't oh, yeah. see. Put on the tape, and I think he should be right up there with Zach Cunningham and everybody else. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. think he's quite. Again, I don't think he's like going to be a superstar because I don't think he has that type of athleticism. But what I like about him is is he's fairly disciplined. He can get sideline to sideline. He is a really good blitzer. He knows how to use his hands well to to get on inside blitzes, outside blitzes. Times him up really well and gets in the quarterback's face. He's strong enough to shed tackles. Uh, to, you know, to to shed blocks, if you will, literally shedding tackles and guards, and uh, and he's usually in the right position. I mean, he's a guy I feel is is a reliable um, linebacker prospect. So I, I think he's another guy that that will slowly rise as uh, the process goes on because I think he's playing really well. I know everybody talks about T.J. Watt, but to me, Jack C.C. is kind of the better overall sort of. I mean, they're uh, kind of right there. TJ watching me, I get a very, I, I get a, a very sort of uh, like uh, you know you know the pass rusher at Arizona from Texas, Arizona Cardinals. You mean Brooks pass Reed? From, no, not Brooks Reed. Uh, uh, what's his what's his name? Um, he went to school at Arizona though. He well, he went to school at Texas. Oh wait! Oh, okay, sorry. I'm, okay, I got, I got, I got it flipped in my mind. Okay, so somebody from Texas, like you're talking about somebody more like one of the Arakpos or. Uh... Well, he's not really Arakpo, but. Okay. I'm trying, it's, it's coming up. It's coming up. Uh, let's see. Alex O'Brien. Oh, oh, all right. Not an Arakpo. Close. Uh, wrong Nigerian. Yes, Okapor. Right. Right. I get a very. When I watch what I get a very uh, a Okafor sort of uh, feeling with him because when you look at him size wise, very similar. And also similar to you know the Raiders had Shalit Calhoun. You know, in terms of guys that are you know they're six foot four, they're not quite full size base ends. You know, they're not two hundred seventy pounds, but they do know how to use their hands really well. They're not quite that explosive though but they are they got decent speed they got decent fluidity you know they're tough guys but they're not exactly you know again i, I hate to say traits whatever but you know they, they don't have the traits of an elite pass rusher you know they're not particularly extremely strong they're not very explosive but they're guys who know how to use their hands well that have decent length and can do a bunch of everything. So there'll be sort of that that sort of backup rotational pass rusher guy that, that can be effective. That's kind of what I see Watt as. So I, I just feel like 
Sihi or Cheesy. But yeah, the linebacker at Wisconsin is is a better sort of in terms of what I see him. I kind of see him as kind of a long term option at linebacker who can kind of do a little bit of everything, um, but isn't like a. But I don't think he's gonna be a special special player. But I think he's got a guy that as the season goes on, he'll get more recognition. He'll get more love and you know admiration stuff like that. Um, if people watch the tape, which they may not, but I just think the whole Raekwon McMillan and like the debate we're having is like, who would you rather have, Raekwon McMillan or, you know, Reuben Foster? And I'm just like, neither. Where's the option C? Like, I, I'd rather have whoever the other guy is. I think C he will probably be that guy going forward. Uh, let's see, anybody else that might get some sort of uh, Corn Elder. Oh, yes, you know. who's finally, I'm hearing his name being bandied about a bit Hope more, so. both in the national media as well as draft Twitter. Hope so. But um, he should. As games go on, he'll get more opportunities to play offenses that actually throw the football. And as a result, he'll be able to make more plays on the football. Uh, Not so true, and, yes. And get more, you know, sort of stuff like that. But, again, I just think he's a guy that, to me, should be considered – you know, in the t- amongst the, the top five corners in the class uh, in terms of, l- at least with me, I mean, because it's kind of like Humphrey's kind of in there and, like, there's a few other guys, but, you know, and, and of course, uh, you know, Iowa, you know, Desmond. So, like, there's there's stuff there where he's kind of in that mix for me, and I think that might actually start to happen, you know, in terms of him getting more in the mix in terms of stuff like that. Another guy that I think might gain more stuff um, is John Ross at Washington might get some more um, hype and admiration and stuff like that. The only major thing with him is that he does have an injury history. You know, he, he is a guy who missed an entire season last year uh, due to, uh, you know, injury, and, and there's there's stuff there. But he's shown this year at least to be a guy who is relatively good route runner um, and has decent releases. And I don't think he'll be a guy who will, like, run – again, he's sort of – he's a little bit more powerful than Will Fuller, but it's just kind of how he wins. You know, he wins with his deception and his ability to kind of set things up and stuff like that versus just pure raw power. But there there is a place for that type of guy. I still kind of see him as a second rounder, but I do know that there's a chance if he gets really hot and, like, has a big game against Alabama, he could be a guy who ends up – in the first round and stuff like that, if, if that happens, um, if, you know, at, at any point in this year. But I think, yeah, but I think he'll probably get some more uh, uh, notoriety as the year goes on. Trubisky, I think, might start to rise a little bit in the uh, discussion. Um, another guy that I, I actually, when I went back and saw some more stuff, was Demarius Travis at Minnesota, the safety there. Um, I think he's He's kind of impressed me a little bit more than than I expected because he's a, he's a guy that is is lining up everywhere. I mean, he's lining up deep, he's lining up in the slot. Um, I think he's also is a guy that has relatively decent uh, instincts for the position and can play main coverage too. So I think he's another guy that might ri- rise up a little bit once people start to uh, to see his tape and to actually get a good idea of. Uh, 
of how he is as a player. Um, Ewan Price is another guy. But then we get to defensive linemen. Uh, to me, I think the top three interior defensive linemen in college football who may not declare because they're underclassmen, um, except for Jalil. I think Jalil Johnson is them. Yeah. But to me, I, I think you'll see a lot more rising when it comes to Solomon Thomas from Stanford. And I think you'll also see a lot more stuff with Harrison Phillips at Stanford. Because I think Phillips, the nose tackle there, has shown out in every game pretty much this year. I mean, he's, he's flashing every game I've seen him. I actually got a chance to to actually sit down and actually evaluate a game he's had, and he, he's good. Uh, he's, he's a guy who has decent power. Um, he's relatively uh, quick, um, but stout inside, and he's just a guy who's, who's a powerful nose tackle that is uh, able to, to actually affect passing games, too, because of that bull rush he has and, and a few of his counters and stuff. So he's a guy I would say people should watch more of. Solomon Thomas is another guy I think people should watch more of just because he's he's been doing a lot of crazy things. I think he might go back to school because he's at Stanford. That's the thing about these. These are guys at Stanford. But I I just – the guys I've been most impressed with defensive – interior defensive line-wise have been the guys at Stanford up to this point. Because I think Thomas is a legit five-tech prospect that is only going to get better as time goes on. I mean, he's to me, you saw a guy from the Kansas State game to now, I'm seeing a guy who's slowly starting to, to, to see. Like, he's one of those guys where, like, everybody says, you know, their first year of college football, they, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just playing. So far, to me, Thomas is starting to, to see things, to, you know, starting to anticipate things a little bit more, starting to really start to see the game uh, at a higher level. Um, and every week, he's just getting better and better. And I think he's a guy that this year, and even if he stays next year, I think he's a guy that everybody should should be watching because he's a really – he's a powerful player. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's just that type of guy where, like, he, he's a – He's a true blue five tech to me who can uh, be a, a record of worlds, if you will, uh, at, at some point. I don't think he's quite there yet, but he's getting there. You know, every week he's getting better. Uh, so he's, he's that type of guy for me, too. And I guess the last, the last sort of guy I'll bring up is, is a, a guy at uh, Indiana, Nate Hoff. The no tackle there, slash uh, defensive tackle there. I mean, he had a really good game against Ohio State. Uh, he got a sack. He got a couple tackles for loss in that game. Uh, he gave, uh, <laughs> you know, the Pat Elfline is a guy that people are, are big fans of, and I'm a big fan of too. But um, he kind of exposed a little bit of, of, of Elfline in terms of uh, uh, going up against guys that are relatively powerful. And I think Hoff uh, at Indiana showed out. And I think as people watch that game against uh, Ohio State, I think Hoff might rise a little bit too in people's minds. I've actually watched that game because he was a guy who was getting good penetration, um, getting into the backfield and making plays against Ohio State. And if everybody is mocking these guys in the first round, then shouldn't they be also taking a good look at the guy that had, you know, was messing up their stuff, if you will, you know, exactly. <laughs> throwing a wrench in the, in the stuff. So I think he's another guy that I think as people watch that game and really take a look at, at that game, uh, they'll come away going, "Wow, this Nate Hoff guy is—he's uh, a powerful player. He and uh, and 
and he can make plays. You know, he gets himself in position to – I kind of see him as more of a nose tackle kind of guy, but um, but he's definitely a guy who, who's making some plays in that game that I actually like. So so those would be the guys that I think will uh, rise more. Of course, Julio Johnson, which I already mentioned a little bit, but Johnson I think has gotten a little bit better. I still think he – I still think he's not the most flexible guy still, you know, in terms of – uh, in terms of his pad level because he's a guy that sometimes gets high and it, it takes away a lot of his explosiveness. But there's no denying that what I've seen on tape is, is a guy who is explosive, a guy who's relatively well coached, and a, a, a guy who is a three-tech who has somewhat of a brain at times. Hmm. So he, there's, there's some times with him where he's kind of getting a little too much penetration and not really stopping to think about what he's doing. But as I said, I think as as the years gone on, he's gotten a little bit more. He's he's learning a little bit more in terms of how to harness that. But I think he's a guy who's who's been really productive for Iowa too, and uh, has been showing up um, in terms of those sort of stuff. So those those are all the guys I think as the as the season goes on, as people start to whether it's December or November, who knows? But as the season goes on and people actually start to take a good look at these guys. I think those are guys that will start to rise a little bit as people um, watch watch them play. And those are – every single one of those guys are guys that I like. And I some of them I, I liked going into the season. Some of them I've, I've started warming up to. I'm going to mention some quarterbacks that I think are going to close the season out strong. Some are juniors, some are seniors. Someone that almost like with Driscoll, though he doesn't have the, the – uh, what do you call it? The uh, baggage, I guess, <laughs> going in that Driscoll had. Louisiana Tech always throws the ball a lot and always throws the ball well. They have some good receivers, and they have a really sort of, to me, interesting quarterback prospect in Ryan Higgins that I just think most people haven't seen yet. But I think they'll begin to see him. It might take till bowl season. It might take till East-West Shrine or NFL PA game practices. But I think when people do actually see him, they'll be impressed. He's a senior, and it's his first chance to really be a full-time starter. So that might be the other reason that people are, are waking up to him late. A guy that I just don't understand why no one ever talks about is Logan Woodside at Toledo, unless it's just his size. He's listed at 6'1". He's probably six feet and a quarter inch and about 202 pounds. But, I mean, if people want to start slapping Drew Brees comparisons on, you know, Mayfield, for the love of gosh, um, a more fitting comparison would be a guy like Logan Woodside. Now, he's not as good as Breeze, but he's much closer to Breeze than a guy like, like Mayfield is. Uh, as much as I hate to say it, Tommy Armstrong Jr., not that I think he's a great, great prospect, but he's the kind of guy who's going to start to hear. Remember how people started at one point discussing, um, oh, what's his name, in Alabama, the running back. Uh, uh, oh, uh, uh... Yeah, I know you're talking about. Um, At one point, he was being discussed as, a, as like an actual quarterback prospect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It'll be sort of like that. Right, right. I get that. And he, his only thing is he can make he can make some decent throws, and then he doesn't make those. Right. So, he doesn't lack for arm strengths. I'll, I'll give yeah, him that. Exactly. Um, it's a lot of spot go type of stuff but like he can make some throws he just doesn't do that consistently um and that's my only that's my only hiccup with him because i think he can make a lot of different throws and he does he makes some throws at times that look really good but it's also mixed with 
uh, to it too. So, I, right. but I, I do think he's a guy that people will will kind of because, as you know, Bill, we've talked about this for a while. When Donovan was on the show too, is that every year you hear about Tommy Armstrong working on improving his family, <laughs> and every year he gets like, back from his vacation, like, and, like the swallows yeah. returning to Capistrano. Yes, right. It's exactly, an annual tradition. Exactly, the annual tradition. But this year, some of that hard work is starting to pay off a little yes. bit. A little bit. I'll say this yeah. much. I can see it way more than when Taylor Martinez, once again, the last time we had a Nebraska quarterback who we heard every year was turning himself into a passer. It never quite came together for him. It's it's much more evident that he wants to be a legitimate passing quarterback. I can see the the effort. And I can see that it's beginning to come through. Uh, someone else who people will, I, I believe, begin to talk about more and more as we continue to sort of plow forward into the, you know, dog days or whatever. Uh, Mike White at Western Kentucky. There were people who were split, you know, all over the yard, obviously last year on Western Kentucky's, you know, pass-heavy attack and, uh, you know, whether the quarterback was simply a, uh, you know, a residue of that particular game plan and whatever. But but I think in Mike White, there's a more, there's more raw talent there. Uh, he's just a junior and, you know, I would be shocked if he declared. He should not declare. But assuming he comes back next year, has an even better grasp of the offense and gets physically stronger and all you know, the things you hope happen between someone's junior and senior year. Though I don't see he'll, you know, I don't think he'll push his way into the top five next year. I think he'll push his way into the top ten, seven, maybe even. If you just watch him, yes, it's a spread attack. Yes, they're usually only reading half the field. But then who reads the whole field? I mean, give me three quarterbacks who on a fairly regular basis read the whole field in college football anywhere. Nobody. Galen Hurts isn't doing it in Alabama. Uh, whatever that kid's name at Michigan State isn't doing it. If he is doing it, he should stop. Um, mm-hmm. Bethard may do it no, occasionally. Nobody. He's not doing it most of the time. Right, nobody does nobody. it. Right. I, people nobody people bring it up like Hatfield Reeves, like, oh, I can't believe it. Everybody's doing it. That's what we're all doing. All and, besides that, and besides that, you, you don't really know. The funny thing about full-filled re- reads is it's something to where you have to have a little bit of inside knowledge, too. You know, so like you're definitely making a because uh, because sometimes they may have full reads, but they're really but you may say they have full reads and really they don't have full reads. They, they had half full reads and the quarterback just freaked out and decided to throw the other side. You know, so but, but you do get but you do get a sense in most of these players that it's all it's half full reads just because of the way the offense is structured. And one aspect of the spread is turning everything into half full reads anyway. You know, having right. this is the side where the play the play is going to happen on the right side, or the play is going to happen on the left side, and whatever's happening on the right side when the play is not happening is not that important anymore. You know, it's just oh. it's a dead zone. So it it's funny that that's kind of what's happened, but that's what's happening in all of college football is it's turning it into left side, right side type of thing. You know, in terms right. of action on the left side, nothing on the right side. You know, type of stuff and. Um, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, it, it is, it's just it's just an aspect of what's happening in college football. You know, everything's turning right. into 
into that approach. So. Right. So I I still believe that the uh, postseason will be a big thing for him, and people will sort of wake up to him late. You know, you hear a lot of people discovering him when he gets to whatever all-star game or things like that. Here's someone I've been desperately hoping that people would wake up to because I hear people just going goo-goo-gaga over Austin Allen, and he's a good quarterback prospect. But my boy Zach Terrell does all the exact same things and no one seems to care. Uh, he has the, I guess the advantage he has is that he, he plays with a terrific, you know, very talented uh, wide receiver prospect in Mr. Corey Davis. And Western Michigan has a really hot young coach who they may be losing towards the end of the season in P.J. Fleck. But the guy that makes all this stuff go, it's Zach Terrell. The ball's getting there on time and in where Mr. Davis can go up and snag it out of the air because that's the quarterback knows where to put it. Is he occasionally, you know, being bailed out or whatever you want to use, uh, you know, sort of like with Hackenberg and Ralph? Sure, it happens occasionally, but more often than not, he's putting the ball on time, on target. He's extremely efficient. He's got underrated arm strength. He's got good, he's got solid West Coast offense arm strength. Like, it's not super amazing arm strength, but it's, I think it's slightly above the average. You know, if we're talking about 100 quarterbacks, well, I guess it's 128 now, he's probably somewhere in the, you know, he's like number 59. Right, I mean, there's a hundred and some odd twenty, I guess, hundred twenty-eight starters, right? And he's probably at number fifty-nine in arm strength. It's not, you know, world-beating, but he gets the ball where he needs to get it. It gets there on time with enough steam on it. People are not diving in front of his balls constantly because he doesn't throw interceptions. So he's, gonna, you know, guy still hasn't thrown one. He's one of the few guys who started every game this season still throwing interceptions. So worth checking out if you haven't checked him out yet. Uh, he's really good. Not great, but really good. Um, let's see. People I think will also begin to wake up to, if they haven't already, to, to Nick Mullins, who has quietly been cutting defenses up for three years now down at Southern Miss. And still, you know, you don't hear his name mentioned in the top 10 on most people's uh, quarterback rankings, even top 20 on some people's quarterback rankings. Some people have guys who have lost their starting jobs Maybe they yeah. don't take their rankings very often, but they yeah. <laughs> don't take their rankings seriously when they do that. I mean, any, anybody that puts Gunner Kill if you've got Gunner Kill ahead of Nick Mullins, if you have Gunner Kill ahead of people that are starting, then you're not doing it right. You're not Sorry. doing it right, exactly. You're not, not, not doing that's it right. A good decision. I mean, because <laughs> it's it's really. I know people. Some people call it a petty argument. It's really not. If if you're not good enough to, to start at a program, um, what? How are you going to start in the NFL? Yes, it's really that simple. You know? I mean, you can bring up uh, you know the one great exception, Matt Castle, and that's cool and everything. Um, but Matt Castle's not headed for the Hall of Fame by the same token right. either. I and mean, Matt he... Castle and Matt Castle also didn't win a job and then lose a job and then win it like. He didn't have that history. Like he was just kind of a backup at a at a program. Um, Gunner Kill has a long history of of weird, odd things that happened. You know, very odd journey. So, um, and and it and you add all that stuff up, and you start to get worried. Like Matt Castle wasn't going from program to program, and and he wasn't like a 
a journeyman going through this program and going to that program. Like, he wasn't, like, going here and lost a job and then went to another place and lost a job and went to another place and lost – like, it's nothing like that. <laughs> right, yeah. and Matt Castle might well have been able to go to San Diego State or San Jose State or, you know, Fresno or whatever and be the starter. And to his credit or whatever you want to call it, he – thought he was in a really good situation at USC and wrote it out and, you know, was behind a Heisman Trophy winner, which makes it tough. You know, it's hard to, exactly. hard to, hard to win the job. And, but. and, you know, stuck to his guns and eventually got an opportunity and made the most of it, um, if you will, in terms of the Patriots, which, I, but as I tell most people, he had Wes Walker and Randy Moss to throw too. Well, that's pretty good coaching staff as well. Pretty good, uh, and pretty good coaching staff. Well, you know, that that whole, uh, what was it, Bella, Bella Cheek or something something like that. I don't know. Kind of an <laughs> odd name. But, yeah, that guy definitely uh, coached his butt off to, to, to make him look good. Yes. Yeah, that was a pretty good. Okay, and i got to mention your guy, Skylar Howard. I think people are starting slowly but surely to wake up to your guy, Skylar Howard. They refuse to wake up to Greg Ward, though. I've tried. I can't get anyone to bite on Greg Ward. <laughs> I bring uh, him up. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to play slot receiver. He's a punt returner. He's a... But he doesn't do any of that stuff. I know, I know, I know. You're saying, you're saying a guy's going to be this, in which, in which case he hasn't really shown a ton of... He hasn't shown... Like, it's not that he can't be a slot receiver. It's just he's not going to be a really dynamic slot receiver. So... What's the point, I guess? I don't know. I mean, he's a yeah, West Coast. If he gets drafted by the Seahawks, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Yeah. Exactly. Don't be surprised. He'll be drafted and people will instantly get it. That Oh, okay. I get it now. You know, he's going to be a guy that the Seahawks can kind of groom and, you know, go from there with. I wouldn't be surprised turn if they got him. I mean, that's what you're looking yeah. for. Yep. You're looking for a guy who can, you know, be a – a kind of doppelganger to your quarterback, you know. Right. And that's what it's Greg clearly, Ward can be. It's clear they have a tight. <laughs> they have a tight. Exactly. Uh, you know, because if, if they have a quarterback room that has Servon Boyke and Greg Ward and, of course, Russell Wilson in it, it'll be pretty clear to people they have a tight. It's like, oh, so you're okay with quarterbacks that are not quite six feet tall and can run around and make people miss and then fling the ball sort of from unusual platforms down the field. Um, but, yeah, I believe, like I said, I, I hope that people, you know, would start to come around Greg Ward, but I've talked to, you know, like drafted people and some actual NFL people, and they are, at least thus far, aren't biting on him as a quarterback. But I haven't talked to anybody from the Seahawks, so maybe they would actually bite. Um it feels like saying Seth Russell, but Seth Russell seems to be somebody that people have, I guess, reawakening maybe is a better way to put it. Uh, he clearly was very squarely in people's minds a, a while back and then sort of fell out of people's minds, sort of forgot about him. I mean, I saw some people not have him in their top five preseason senior quarterback rankings, which either meant to me they thought he was not going to play football ever again or they had very short memories, one or the other. Was and remains my number one senior quarterback, and barely fighting off my guy Zach Terrell. <laughs> uh, but once again, he's a he's a very much above uh, average athlete with one of the better arms in the class. 
yes, he's in an offense where it's all good, it's all spread, it's the spreadiest of spreads, and, you know, he's not being asked to do the same things that Dan Marino did when he was at Pitt or that Elway did at Stanford. He's not even asked to do the things that Luck did at Stanford, quite frankly. Yes, yes, correct. But no one is. Uh, I, if I can accept it, if I can get over the fact that the game is changing, then the younger people should be able to do it as well. So what he does do and what he is asked to do is make a lot of uh, bucket throws <laughs> deep down the field and consistently does it at a really high level, more so than all the – who else can do it at that level? I mean, there's only a couple of guys that, in this whole draft class that I think are even close to him the ability to throw balls 55, 45, 60 yards sometimes down the field and just drop it right in someone's hands, basically. That's a skill, people. Not everyone has it. Um, here's someone who's more of a sort of a dual threat, and once again, there'll be some people who will probably want to project him to another position. Quentin Flowers at South Florida. He was on my all-emerging team last year. He's on my all-underappreciated team this year. All he does is make a lot of really interesting plays. I mean, he's not that different except being bigger and stronger from a guy like Mayfield. He's basically a bigger, stronger, and obviously darker version of of Mayfield. He uh, is probably right at six feet tall, maybe, but thicker body, stronger arm. He can break tackles. He can avoid tackles. He's a pretty effective runner with the ball, but like I said, the thing that impresses me is he's, once again, in the top five probably in deep ball accuracy. He can really sling the ball deep. I mean, you can quibble with his underneath and and even intermediate placement sometimes, but he can really throw the ball deep down the field. And if you like that kind of thing, and I'll be honest that I do, I like the long ball. He's one of the guys near the top of my list in terms of the ability to throw the ball deep down the field. Um, let's see. I'll mention another guy who's on my all-emerging team this year is Riley Ferguson at Memphis. Now, he'll be compared because school, right? Uh, he's a different kind of quarterback, obviously, than uh, the most recent. I mean, first of all, that's an unusual kind of quarterback. Paxton Lynch is different from most other quarterbacks for a bunch of reasons. Yep. Uh, the way, you know, he's he's obviously in the, you know, top one, probably top two tenths of one percentile, I'm guessing in terms of height or something. I mean, there's only been a couple of guys his height in the history of the game. And then once again, he has some some physical gifts that are a little different from a guy like uh, like anybody. <laughs> um, you can't expect the next guy to step in and be the same kind of guy. He's not. He's a very different kind of quarterback. But he is accurate. He does know how to keep the safety in the middle field long enough, which I, I think is tremendously underrated. I mean, what's one of the reasons for Deshaun Kaiser's struggles this year? He's taking defenders to the ball consistently. Deshaun Watson has consistently been taking defenders to the ball with his eye instead of taking them away from them. And that was one of the strange things. Last year, we will say he regressed. I mean, no, mostly I disagree with the exception of one aspect. I think the team's not quite as good. I think he's you know, I don't know, almost seems distracted, and I think he has some sort of, like I said, nagging injury. But the one thing where he has actually, in my mind, been less consistent is taking, keeping the safety in towards the middle of the field or taking him out of the middle of the field if you want to try to throw into the middle of the field uh, with his eye. 
that's one of the things that I've actually seen Riley Ferguson do fairly consistently. Uh, he's once again a first year starter. He has he's up and down a little bit, but I think next year he'll be even better, and my, that's my hope at least he'll be better next year. But he's shown me some interesting things. A guy that's on my all-emerging team this year and will probably be on all-emerging next year, but he's a guy that I urge anyone. He's just a sophomore, but pretty good bunch of sophomore quarterbacks. I urge people, urge, urge, urge them to watch Chase Litton at Marshall. Very interesting prospect. Uh, big, strong kid. Uh, good arm. Not terrible feet. But... You know, once again, in a, in a catch-and-release kind of system, so you, you don't know exactly how he'd look in a more traditional offense, but once again, you can see that just about everybody. Uh, some of the similar things can be said of, of Brett Rippon, but he's obviously a smaller, more compact guy, clean mechanics, nephew of a Super Bowl-winning quarterback, blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, uh, interesting player. Here's a guy that divides the room. Mason Rudolph, Oklahoma State. Some people love him. I know some people even have him ahead of Mahomes. Uh, I do not, but I know people who do. And I, I can kind of, sort of, almost kind of, sort of, almost kind of understand. But they're in essentially the same offense, and he doesn't do quite as many wow, eye-popping things as Mahomes does. But he also doesn't play – it's not quite as much of a high-wire act as well as Mahomes, which I, I guess – People who don't like that in their quarterback <laughs> may gravitate towards a guy like Rudolph. It's like, well, I'm getting a lot of some of the same things but without all of the, you know, oh, my heart uh, kind of stuff that occasionally you get from a guy like Mahomes. Throw now, it away. Know, you throw it away. Yeah. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, some, that's something that people have criticized, sometimes accurately, Mahomes, is that he doesn't always he doesn't realize that sometimes the play is just dead. You know, hey, we, they got us on this one. You don't see him, once again, people bring up Brett Farr. Brett Farr was one of those guys that just didn't seem to realize, hey, you know, sometimes the defense just has your number. Just try to get out of this play with a little damage done as possible, move on to the next one. Now, that to, to Brett Farr, that sounded like cowardice, I guess. And so he didn't, know, didn't really want to buy into that. And you see some of that in Mahomes as well. He seems to be always convinced that, you know, he can – Make chicken salad out of you know, plays never did. <laughs> yes, plays never did. Exactly. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Right. I get it. But yeah, there's definitely times when you know discretion might actually be the better part of valor, and you, you see that more in Mason Rudolph. Now, you and I haven't really discussed Rudolph in in much depth. What? Where are you on Mason Rudolph? He's he's kind of a I have him as a eh, – it's weird. He's he's sort of a – in terms of uh, – what's it called? He's like in the middle. Like he's sort of a – he's with Skylar Howard. He's with those types of guys. I do think he's more talented than them. But my biggest issue with Rudolph is just that he looks really good and then he doesn't look really good. And I think some of that's because he has inconsistent intermediate accuracy, inconsistent deep accuracy, uh, the ball place that just isn't always quite there um, with him when it comes to deep balls and intermediate balls at times um, to where he needs his wide receivers to be, like, wide open at times to really, you know, make the most of it. So, like, I think he – 
I think he has a good arm. I think he has decent athleticism, but I don't quite think he has accuracy, consistent accuracy across all the fields, you know, all the spectrums, if you will. And as right. a result, that's right. kind of why he's he's in that sort of, uh, he, you know, he's with like Brad Kaya and, you know, like I said, Skylar Howard and Nick Mullins. And, you know, like he's, he's in that sort of area of quarterbacks where they don't quite have consistent accuracy in the intermediate to deep range. It's either or. It's like either intermediate where it's not consistent or it's not consistent deep. And with him, he's just kind of there for me. I think there's a lot of stuff there. He flashes a lot of – again, he flashes arm strength. He flashes the ability to hit the deep ball and intermediate. But his ball placement just isn't always there consistently. Right. I can see that. And he's a, he's a guy that's capable of, of getting hot and, and, you know, looking like a first-rounder and then capable of getting cold and looking like a – guy that you would, you know, take a six-round compensatory flyer off. So, you know, I guess when you average that out, you know, he ends up somewhere in sort of in that, that mix in between, as you just said. But still, should he declare, which I, I would advise him not to, but he might, well, don't be surprised if you start to hear positive buzz, you know, as he goes through his pro day and that kind of thing because of his ability to look like you know, the kind of guy that you would want. And I began to realize several years ago that looking like the kind of guy that people want can help you to go early in the draft, whether or not you are that guy or not. Yep, exactly. E.J. Manuel, for example. Sure. Uh, Blaine Gabbert. I mean, there's a long list of, boy, you sure look like it is a quarterback kind of guys who's, parlayed that into a certain level of, if not success, then at least opportunity. Yeah. It, it's, it's been proven you have a much better chance if you look like that guy than if you look like Raheem Cato or Garrett Saffron. Exactly. You don't even get a shot if you don't look like the guy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the case. Um, amongst the running backs, sticking with South Florida, <laughs> if Marlon Mack uh, chooses to declare, I think you'll hear, you once again, people sort of wake, waking up to him as well. He compactly built, quick, powerful, uh, has a good first two gears, uh, can catch the ball some. I mean, he's not going to be mistaken for a great receiving back, but he's not unable to catch the ball. Now, in this particular class of running backs, I'd advise him to, you know, wait until next year, but you know, as you pointed out, uh, there's always a good number of players who probably shouldn't declare who, who, who will. I'm hoping he's not amongst that number, but running backs tend to declare almost unless they have a compelling reason not to. Well, this is not the year to declare. No, I agree. This is not the year. If you are a a sort of – if nobody – 
unless you are a top five, unless you have, I mean, unless you are someone who you know will be drafted in day one, you, you know, uh, which is only three dudes, really, four dudes, maybe. But unless you know or NFL teams are telling you that you are going to be a day one pick, you don't go because day two is going to be where there's a lot of business decisions when it comes to running backs. Because, you know, there's going to be a lot of running backs who aren't first-rounders but are really talented that are going to fall into that day two range. And there's going to be so many of them that it just is a matter of luck that you stick out. So it was was not the type of class to declare if you are – even if you are a day two talent because there's so many day two talents that you're just going to – you know, unless you have a huge combine or something like that that kind of – raise your draft stock and stuff like that, yeah. you'll be lost yeah. in the sauce pretty much. Yeah, I agree. I think there'll be – this will be a – and people will once again use the argument when a couple of these guys end up having really good careers. See? You can find running backs everywhere. Right, exactly. Well, my 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 – the actual truth of the matter is, it's not because you can't – you can find running backs everywhere. It's because you're not evaluating the running back position properly. and it's just something that goes back to – it's something that comes back to understanding metrics, something that comes back to just understanding – I mean, look look at Jordan Howard, right? Jordan Howard is a guy who, when I did my metric stuff, was 11 out of 12 in terms of his overall grade, in terms of his you know, talent. The only thing he didn't have is he didn't have all pro production. That was it. He had pro bowl production. He had athleticism marks that were similar to Eddie Lacy and similar to Marion Barber. Um, when it came to his age, he was the right age. I mean, every single thing hit. And tape-wise, he was a he really – the only real question thing with him was just that his, his injury history. You know, he missed a couple games um, at Indiana that year because of injury. But when you look at his full spectrum of stuff, he should never have been a fifth-round pick. <laughs> like, that's, that's not – Nope. It never should have happened, period. So it's not that you can find running backs everywhere. It's the fact that you don't know. The, the NFL, it's like anything else. You know, the NFL approaches drafts, and some some analysts, too, approach drafts as lottery tickets, you know. Like, you're only going to hit on so many players, so get more picks and so you can hit on more players when the approach really should be finding out the players that have a higher statistical chance of hitting. And I think that the NFL doesn't pay attention to that stuff. They pay attention more to, you know, the traits, you know, Ah, like that's my issue with Joe Mixon is everybody's like, Oh, Joe Mixon has the traits. Well, he doesn't have the production trait, you know, (laughs) because production (laughs) is the trait. If you're saying the traits, the traits, the traits, the traits, every single all pro running back for the most part, Again, exceptions like Jerome Bettis and for who, for what, Ricky Waters. But all the ones, Barry Sanders, Adrian Peterson, you know, O.J. Simpson, Marcus Allen, uh, even the ones that became Hall of Famers, which are kind of debatable, but who knows, Curtis Martin, like all those guys had production. That's a trait, you know, that's a trait. So you can't sit here and tell me production isn't a trait when it is a trait of great players. And when you have a guy like Joe Mixon, and in fact, it's one of the most telling traits in terms of future. Pretty much, exactly. When you have a guy like Joe Mixon, who 
yeah, he looks talented. You know, you know he's big, he's fast. He, you know, he, he he catches the ball like a wide receiver because he was a former wide receiver. Like, he does a lot of that cool stuff. But he doesn't show that he can be a full-time bell cow back. And there are numerous examples of running backs who had athleticism traits, really high athleticism traits, but weren't very productive, went to the NFL, and didn't really do much. Yep. You know? So from the Chris Henrys of the world to the Lindell White, I mean, it's just a long list of guys. So, I mean, if you're going to tell me that the traits, the traits, the traits, I'm going to tell you that's BS because production is a part of the traits. It just is. You know, if you're saying this guy's going to be an elite running back, a special running back, the next great whatever, and you're going to take him really, really high. He, I mean, but the thing is, is when it comes to these guys, there is stuff on tape that shows you why they're not being productive. It shows you why it's, it's. I mean, and, and at least in Mixon's case, yeah, he catches the football really well. But the reason why P. Ryan is taking carries away from Mixon is that he's a better inside runner. You know, he's a better yes. guy in terms of inside running ability. And when you go to the NFL, it isn't all going to be stretch plays and sweeps and stuff. It's, you're going to have to be able to get it done inside, and he hasn't proved that yet. That's a trade as well that he ain't making. So it's, yeah, it's one you're of just ignoring the most too important ones. I mean, people who people who want to. I mean, even going back to Reggie Bush, right? I mean, that was that was the knock on Bush that he had everything in the world you could want, except he struggled with seeing, finding, waiting for holes in the interior. And he had this tendency to want to take everything to the edge. And, of course, in high school and college, he successfully took everything to the edge because no one could stay with it. Exactly. And then the when NFL, he got to the NFL, <laughs> he still got the so edge. Much. I mean, he was, you have to understand, he still got the edge. He still was productive in terms of that kind of stuff. And he got a bet. And he got better as inside runner as he got, you know, as he got older, you know, as he got more experience. But you're leaving yards in the field when all you can do is get the edge, period. You know, so, in fact, on top of the fact that the NFL has more speed and, you know, has better players, so you're not going to get as much off those edge plays, too. But it's just a thing. I mean, again, I don't like to repeat myself a lot on things, but, again, production is a trait. And for people that keep saying it isn't a trait, they're just not living up to the facts. Right. You know, it's a trait like anything else. It's a trait like the ability to be a good inside runner. It's a trait like a player being explosive or being fast. Like, that's a, it's a trait like any other trait. That's the definition of a trait, you know. So, <laughs> it's, production is as much of a trait as anything else. They just want to ignore that for whatever reason because they just are in this mindset of, you know, Tape is is all. Tape is everything. Must worship the tape. And I, again, I'm not denying that tape is important. I'm just saying that it's tape plus everything else to give you better perspective on players. And and getting back to the tape, as you pointed out, what the tape can really do is if a person has failed to hit certain thresholds, Nixon or whoever it is, you know, Geis or whoever it is that someone's fallen in love with because of their some of some of their traits, but you can find why their production traits aren't where they should be, and whether it be this person can't be trusted in certain situations, uh, so the coaches don't want to have them on the field in certain situations, or whether it be that 
the player simply hasn't earned the opportunity because they are, whether it be, I don't want to say soft, but they don't, maybe they don't have the ability yet to get production, as you said, between the tackles. Maybe they do not catch the ball well enough. Maybe they don't protect. Maybe they don't pass protect. Yep. Enough. You know, maybe they're not the most effective pass catcher either. Like they can catch the pass, but they can't generate a lot of, uh, it's like with Derrick Henry, you know, Derrick Henry could catch the football, but he wasn't like this crazy guy after the catch, you know, yeah. once he caught the football, he wasn't like making people miss or making big plays after the catch, uh, in, ter- in right. terms of those sort of things, which is why I never quite said he was like a receiving back because he just never was that he, he could catch the football. Yeah. But, he wasn't like, you know, same thing with Melvin Gordon, you know. There was there was this huge contingent of people bashing me for saying that he wasn't that great of a receiver. It's, uh, being a receiver is much more than just the ability to catch the football. It's the ability to catch the football and then make something happen after that point. Right, right. And because once he made one pretty impressive-looking hands catch, it's like, oh, see? <laughs> yeah, but did he do anything after? No. So... Yeah, so, I mean, it, it just gives, again, like I said, it just gives perspective in terms of, you know, everything that you just said. You know, if a guy, it, it's like with, with Balazs, you know, Balazs is a really impressive running back from a physical standpoint. But then you look at the turnovers, and that's a big deal, guys. Like, running back that turns the football over is going to lead to more losses. I mean, that's why Belichick doesn't like running back turning the football over because – He's Belichick, and he knows the more turnovers that we end up with, the less games we're going to win. And I can't have a running back, you know, coughing up the football. I can't tolerate it. Can't have it. Can't win with him. Exactly. Exactly. And you can't. I mean, it's not just talk. It's true. There is no better way to end up not winning football games than to have turnovers. It has been proven. Exactly. Not and, a theory, it's a fact. And, yes, are there running backs that theoretically could improve and because of their talent they supersede stuff like that? Sure. I mean, yeah, it, it's possible, but that means that you're putting a lot of faith in stuff that hasn't happened yet. So it's it, – I just don't – people that have the belief that of development – um, of a guy developing into a certain guy at the next level, there is that. But every player develops, you know. Every every like that's something you should assume for every player. Like JJ Watt got better in the NFL, uh, but he was already a good player in college. Like every player is going to have some type of development. Peyton Manning developed as he you know from college to the NFL and got better from where he was as a freshman. Same thing with Tom Brady. Same thing with all these players. You can't just say that well, he's going to develop when every player, for the most part, when they hit the NFL, they're going to get better as players. It's just the thing is, is they were so behind these other guys, can they catch up? You know, can they have a radically bigger development than these other players? And that's the real issue, at least to me, is it's it's been shown that the sort of idea that these guys are going to develop or had this drastic, they don't realize that every player pretty much is going to develop. Every player is going to get better for the most part, unless they don't try. Um, they're, they're not, you know, unless they don't try or they're on a bad coaching staff. Yeah. They're not going to get better. But for the most part, every player that goes in the NFL is going to get, they're going to have development. They're going to get better from where they were in college. 
but because they were only at this level when they entered, they're going to be at a supremely disadvantage to other players that come in and are more developed. So that's the whole, that's the point of all this stuff. That's why we say a quarterback should stay in school. That's why we say, you know, other players should stay in school is because, you know, when you go to the NFL, you know, well, we already talked about it. The development is less, there's less emphasis on it. And college football is where you really need to get to a certain level. And if you're not to that level yet to compete with all these other players, you should really stay and get to that level if you can, you know? So, but yeah, I, I just think that when it comes to running backs and stuff like that, I just, I just feel like there's the, the NFL really doesn't know what they're doing, you know, <laughs> or they look at it like a lottery or there's a lot of good feelings because I, you, you see, you see the trends where, you know, the NFL got burned with running backs, so they decided not to take them in the first round anymore. And then all of a sudden you had guys like Eddie Lacy and Le'Veon Bell and all those guys, and they're like, oh, running backs are good again. Let's start to take them in the first round again. But, you know, like, it's it's this whole ebb and flow of liking them and then not liking them, and it's just getting ridiculous at this point. You know, like, it's, there's going to be a draft where a running back goes really high who isn't good, and we're going to say they aren't good, and then they get burned, and then they're going to be like, oh, can't take running backs in the first anymore because, you know, they're not good anymore when you need to be looking at the things that make the good running backs. Cause again, it's not about, I mean, the only good thing, uh, the only good thing about the fact that the NFL makes mistakes in player evaluation is that, yeah, you're going to have opportunities to get a player in the fourth round or the fifth round that you, that you normally wouldn't be able to get, uh, you know, get because of the inefficiencies and, and the scouting methods. But at the same time, you can't just chalk it up to finding a running back anywhere. Like, I, I just feel like that's a really dumb argument. It's the fact that you've missed well, a vow to it's, players. It's, it's like saying, look, Tom Brady might be the best quarterback of all time. He was picked number 199. You can, yeah, quarterback you can find anywhere. quarterbacks anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at the, look at, look at, I mean, look at the NFL right now. I mean, we have guys like Jack Prescott. We have, you know, Cousins. You know, Kirk Cousins was a fourth-round pick. Uh, we have... I mean, there's tons of quarterbacks in the NFL right now that were not first-round picks. And we don't say that you can find quarterbacks anywhere. You know, we don't say that. So it's really it's point, dumb. Yeah. It's a dumb argument to make. You know, Dick Prescott is, is playing really well, you know, in terms of – now, of course, some of that has to do with the fact he's in an offense. and You know, like, it's, yeah. there's stuff like that. But he's playing Keenum, at a level – Case Keenum is keeping a guy who was the first overall pick on the bench. Exactly. Uh, Hoyer, in addition to, you know, obviously Cutler being hurt, there's the general consensus I can say around here is that people are hoping he still has the job even when Cutler is healthy. So undrafted free agent. There's a lot of ways to find quarterbacks as well as a lot of ways to find players in any position. But for some reason, at some positions, people seem to err on the side of, hey, you can, as you say, can find this guy any old place. You just have to, quote, unquote, get lucky or or whatever it is. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's this feeling that you, hey, you've got to take this guy in the first round. In fact, in the first few picks of the first round or else, you know, destruction awaits. Pretty much. You know, I mean, and the other thing is, is I don't, I don't filter – like I don't add round filters to my stuff. And the reason I don't do that is because if I do that, then I miss out on players period because of the inefficiencies, you know, in terms of 
like if like if I just did a thing where I filtered out all my stuff so that it only has first rounders and second rounders, I would have a much higher, you know, efficiency in terms of like a higher hit rate, if you will. But I don't necessarily think that's true because I'm just filtering things down to guys that were drafted in the first round. You know what I'm saying? So like it's you're just filtering stuff just to filter stuff when the fact of the matter is you need to be focusing on the bigger picture. And I think that you could say that with any position. You know, we've seen yep. pass rushers taking in the third and the fourth round that became great players and like, oh, you can find pass rushers anywhere. You know, we've, we've Jared, seen that. Jared Allen is headed to the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, there's yeah. – uh, right? I mean, there's – yes, there's there's going to be – you have to – evaluation is either about a method or, as you said, it's about hope. But, but you've got to – but you've got to make a decision how, which one you're going to choose as your path. Are you going to choose the – the path of developing a method that a methodology is built around, you know, just hopefully systematically weighing a player's chances for success based on, as you said, a combination of things, production, uh, tape, physical ability, uh, mental ability. I mean, that's the thing that people sometimes forget. The learning curve is steep at every position. It's super steep at certain positions. Yep. You know, it's kind of why you know, Quentin Span. you know, because to me, I think the reason why Quentin Span went undrafted was because they talked to Quentin Span about football and he probably wasn't, you know, the highest of a football IQ coming out of, you know, West Virginia, you know, in terms of uh, what they did or they just, or they made an impression on him or who knows, you know, as, as you know, Bill, unless you, the NFL gets really biased against players for whatever reason, you know, if you're too smart, if you're too this, or you're too that, then they don't like you, you know, sort of stuff. But, I mean, you just see this constant, we're, we're quitting spinning. Again, another example, because I've been pretty good with, when it comes to offensive linemen with, like, Shaq Mason and stuff like that, where the fact is that Shaq Mason was one of the most athletic guards to come out ever and ended up being a third-round pick or not even a third round, a fourth round pick, you know, where you literally had the Patriots taking one of the least athletic guards ever in Trey Jackson and then <laughs> taking one of the most athletic guards ever in Shaq Mason, and then they still stuck to their guns with Trey Jackson until they finally realized, yeah, Trey Jackson is that great. Shaq Mason needs to be the guy. And then, of course, you have the example with the Titans where they, they picked up Quentin Spann as a undrafted free agent. And when it comes to Span, he's a guy that, athletically speaking, I mean, he was extremely – I mean, he, he was a Hulk level – I don't want to say Hulk level, but, like, he's that type of, you know, of offensive, uh, offensive guard prospect who was extremely explosive, extremely fast, and uh, had everything else that you were looking for. But he goes undrafted because of reasons. I mean, he had injury history, but – I never quite understood why he went undrafted, and then now he, you know, turned it up on the Titans to the point where he literally gave Khalil Mack the business in a couple plays, you know, uh, in terms of matching up, matching, you know, his explosiveness was matching up Khalil Mack's explosiveness pretty well, which is which is saying something because Khalil Mack is a very explosive player. Yes, but, um, yes, he is. But I just think there's these there's these internal there's these internal external biases that muck stuff up to the point where you need to it, it, it's it's all simple there is a lot of it's not really it's simply complex and complex and simple it's football people like you know there's there's, there's some stuff that are clear things 
but I don't think that people are really paying attention. You know, again, when it comes to offensive linemen and athleticism, I I always end up fighting with with offensive line coaches and stuff over stuff because they think that athleticism doesn't matter and you know it should just all be about tape and stuff like that. And I do think it should be about tape, but at the same right. time, I I think that they need to pay attention a little bit more to when it comes to athleticism and stuff because they won't be caught off guard with stuff. You know, they'll <laughs> it'll give them stuff to pay attention to. It'll give them stuff to kind of assess how how like long-term success because I think a lot of it has to do with long-term success too where you have a player who definitely was really good in college they go to the NFL the injury happens here and there I mean you know what I mean like a you know injury will happen where they had enough explosiveness to last at the beginning but then after that injury they're done you know like Cyrus Quandra for example he's a guy that I, I just pull out as a guy who definitely probably was I mean he probably was a, a, a NFL athlete at one point but the injuries kind of piled up to the point where he just wasn't functional. He didn't have the functional athleticism to survive anymore. Sure. And that's, that happens. And then you've got Tom Cable at the whole other end of the spectrum where, you know, it's almost like, hey, yeah. I can, I'll take anybody in off the streets as long as he's, you know, Big and strong well, and pretty good athlete. I can I can do yeah, anything. Yeah, tons them. of guys like that. I mean, you got Serrano, and you have the Falcons guy that they hired that one time. Like you'll have these these offensive guru types that'll come in and they'll, and they'll uh, they'll make lemonade out of lemons, you know. But it isn't long. It isn't long term consistent. Like they're not. There's a reason why these coaches kind of go to a place and then leave. Is that it's not going to last forever. You know, like you're gonna, like I said, the insurance policy only covers so much. You know, the coaches can only mask. So it's like with the Vikings, like, like sure, Sam Bradford. It is a funny thing where a guy basically is like, so you say the Vikings have a bad O line, and yet their quarterback was barely, you know, barely hit at all, and he's also a, you know, he's like a little egg back there. You know, like he's a quarterback known. He's a quarterback known to crack, if you will. It get yeah, hurt, okay. but yeah. at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but that's because of it is because of coaching. It's it's scheme and everything else like that. But again, the insurance only covers so much. Like eventually, and I hate to say this, Vikings people, but eventually, I see something bad happening. Like there's <laughs> gonna be a hurricane that comes to town. Hurt, you know, Hurricane Von Miller, or Hurricane whatever, who's <laughs> gonna wreck your stuff, <laughs> and. You may take your quarterback with him, you know. So, I mean, it's you just have and to. Then it's uh, is it McLeod? What's his name? Bethel McLeod Thompson. At that point, I remember who is the next guy up at that if that happens. Exactly, it's not a good. Uh, it's not a great option if memory serves me correctly. Is Joe Webb no. still on the roster? Though I think he's a what considered a wide receiver now. But yeah, they. Yeah, mm. they. No way, he's in Carolina now. So no, that's right, he's in Carolina. Well, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patterson got a touchdown, so everybody's like, "Yay!" But yeah, uh, I mean, oh my god! I mean, the way the, the way Alex Boone is there, of course. Like that, Alex Boone is the only guy I actually like there, to be honest, because I, I think mm-hmm. he's a guy who's he's power, um, right, and stuff like that. He's he's kind of in it for himself, though. But like he, he's, you know, he can 
Because he is. Like, he's <laughs> like, I want, you know, I want to get paid type of mentality, which is all right. You know, that's right. You know, that's what you want to do. It's a really hard yeah. thing to play offensive line in the NFL, and you should be paid if you can do it reasonably exactly. well. But it's Sam Bradford and then behind him, Sean Hill. And yeah, as of right, right. now, the tackles Sean, are TJ Clemens, Ooh. who has no backup right now. Oh. Um, at right tackle, they have Jeremiah Steele. Oh, watch right. Jake Foreman is mm. behind him, and we know his history. So oh, it's a it's a it's a thing that's waiting to happen. It's like what I tell Packer fans, where they're like, "Oh, we we have a good offensive line. What are you talking about? Did you not watch them play?" And then Aaron Rodgers <laughs> gets a concussion, and then you're like, "Oh, oh, well, you know." And then of course, offensive line people who were praising these tackles go, "Hey, you know." He's going to go up against guy every now and again. He can't handle. Well, you were like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just sorry. Like, again, it's, it, it, it you're ready to accept that because, as the answer, Jim. That's not, you know, you're yeah. to just say, hey, I'm just today saying a quarterback must die. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just don't, I'm not willing to accept that. I think you need to understand that, sure, they, 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 they can play well against certain players. Fine. That's great. But, you, I mean, quarterbacks are, I mean, they're, they're everything now at this point in, in the NFL. Right. I mean, if you have a good quarterback, you have a good team. If you don't have a very good quarterback, you know, I mean, look at the Raiders. Like, the Raiders, for the most part, I mean, we wouldn't be winning as many games as we are right now if we didn't have Derek Carr. Like, that's – You are correct. <laughs> you are. That's not happening. We're not 4-1 and one if it, if it, unless we have Derek Carr. So, and there's a lot of teams like that. You know, like, if Matt Ryan isn't on the Falcons, I mean, may, maybe they have a running game and they do some stuff, but I don't think they win as many games, you know. So, like, it's become so important. So this whole attitude of, well, they're not great, but they can deal with most people. I don't, don't want to buy it. Like, you need to <laughs> you need to be constantly improving the places you can you can improve. And I think there definitely is a debate about. As you know, but there's there's always the debate about. Well, you have to manage your cap. You have to figure out ways to. But I just don't think that because the fact, the fact that Quentin Span is falling to, you know, uh, the fact that Quentin Span is an undrafted free agent, the fact that Shaq Mason is becoming a fourth rounder, the fact that Jake, you know, Jake Fisher became a second rounder proves, and even Jason Spriggs proves that you can improve your offensive line if you just took a little bit more time to actually make sure you're getting the right guy, you know, so. I don't know. Because right now, Bill, the Oakland Raiders have right tackle issues. They had Jason Spriggs on the board. Who did they decide to get? Jihad Ward. <laughs> and so far, Jihad Ward ain't living up to the name, you know, um, which no. should have been obvious if you watch the tape. But yeah. it's backed up by the data. It's backed up by his production. It's just and – and, again, I don't want to rant too much on the Raiders, but I'm just saying, like, we had opportunities to fix issues that were going to become issues we didn't take that opportunity, and now we're stuck with what we're stuck with. And, and thankfully, Derek Carr gets rid of the football really quick. I mean, he played at Fresno State. Like, he's used to that. Like, he's used to <laughs> having to get rid of the football immediately because, you know, the, the line – I mean, Fresno State line wasn't holding up, you know. Watch um, out. Exactly. But at the same time, all it takes is one, you know, one slip up, one mistake, and then Carr starts getting hit more and, you know, and just – the whole thing, but 
But yeah, but I, I just think that there's a sort of, I mean, every, every position, there needs to be more of a embracing of every aspect of things instead of this, because I'm tired of these camps, man, like the production camp and the, and you know, the trait camp and the tape camp. And like, it, like there doesn't, this camp shouldn't exist. They should all be one cohesive thing, you know, yep. and they're not. And that's kind of what, you know, it's kind of sad, I guess. Right. There needs to be more of that mix. Right. Well, I mean, I came from, I guess what you call the tape camp. I didn't know so much about the other stuff. I always, I always valued production, but I didn't know how to value it. Like, I, I knew it was important, but I didn't know, I knew nothing of thresholds. I knew nothing of, I didn't know what, what it meant. Yeah, basically. And I've only lately really began to understand just how important it is in terms of figuring out a player's chances to succeed at the next level. But unless you do everything, unless you are, which is what all of us should be. I mean, it should be, as you pointed out, there's no reason to look down on an important piece of data just because it's new to you. <laughs> I guess if I can figure that out as, as old as I am, I would think someone who's in their teens or 20s would warm right up to it pretty quickly, I would think. Exactly. And to not and to not have the added, because as you know, Bill, you have to, as a data guy, you have to take other people's sins, if you will. <laughs> so like, I have to defend myself against people who said, well, all all analytics people didn't like Odo Beckham Jr. and I'm like, uh, nope. Whoa, not like, true. Who told you that? Like, uh, like right. who, who, who told, told you? That. Who told you? Because and that's the problem. As a data, you know, again, as a data guy, which I, I, I mean, I don't want to consider myself a data guy, but as a person who's being called a data guy, I have to deal with the sins of other people, you know, all the time. Where it's like, well, Benelik Watson was a great athlete. Uh, no. no, no, he wasn't. But somebody said it, and and now it's the law now, you know, because so and so said he was a great athlete, so now he's a great athlete, and that's not the case. Same thing with every position. So, like, there's there's too much of a. You just have to rise above a lot of stuff, and that's my only. That's my only last thing, I guess I would say, is that the biggest issue that analytics has to have, the biggest issue that analytics has in general is just that because there have been people who have proclaimed themselves to be analytics people and they failed or they didn't look at certain things or they didn't do it the right way, all of a sudden, it's like in the Browns right now. Like every single decision the Browns have made, people blame analytics for why they're losing. Um, mm-hmm. Like they go, oh, right. well, the analytics told them to do it, you know, like it's, it, and it's really dumb because just because, you know, a, a guy says that they do analytics doesn't mean that they're doing it the right way. Because I've seen teams, there's been tons of guys, Howard Roseman, for example. I mean, I've seen interviews with him and being at analytics convention stuff where he talks about how they use analytics and how they, how they use it to find players and, how they use it to do this and do that. And, and it's like, okay, that's cool. But 
I would also have criticisms. Like, I don't think you're doing it the right way. I, I think looking at that, you should be focusing on this. So, like, and nobody's perfect. I get that. But I just think there's there's too much of a blaming, you know. It's a new thing to where, like, if, if it fails, everybody fails. <laughs> and, you, and you've seen this. I mean, you know, again, the Cowboys, as you know, Bill, you know, the Cowboys – it goes all the way back to the Cowboys where the Cowboys, you know, made that little computer program or whatever, where it took all the data and spit out a number. And it said, this guy's going to be the next best, whatever, because of all this stuff. And they drafted them really high and people made fun of him, And then he ended up not being a very good player. Um, right. You know, and that kind of took a hit to analytics. And people are like, Oh, you're an analytics guy. Well, analytics doesn't work. See, you look at the Cowboys, but, I would say, again, were they doing it right? Probably not. And it's not a simple answer either. Like, all this right. this, this goal, because too, too often with analytics people, and this is of everybody, force players, spark, whatever it is, whatever it's called, is there's too much of an emphasis on getting everything rounded to one number, and that's the end-all, be-all number. When you need to take everything at an individual basis. You know, like it's more than just that number. There has to be, there has to be more stuff added to it. And you're going to have the human element to it as well, because we're human, you know, we're not robots. So you're, you're going to have that element to it too, where you're going to make mistakes too, because you're a human, you know, you're, you made a mistake reading data or whatever, but um, I just, I just feel like that's my biggest issue with analytics at this point is, is the fact that it's becoming more mainstream, sort of, but because people don't quite understand how to use it the right way, it just is going to give a bad name to everything else. And like I said, I have to defend it constantly. You know, like even Justice has to defend it. Like if a force player doesn't end up being good, he has to scramble to figure out a way to, instead of just saying that the system isn't perfect and there has to be other stuff, you know, like, you just have to take it from there, I guess. You have to realize right. that it, is, it isn't perfect. When I say that a player isn't going to be good, it's not just because of the numbers, it's because of all these other facets to it, but he may still end up being good. I mean, even if I don't like him and the data says that he's not going to be good and he ends up being good, you know, that that's just a part of life. But at the same time, there is uh, stuff. There's stuff to it. And I just think that if more people at the NFL level – and in the draft Nick level, really embrace every aspect. Sort of instead of just picking and choosing what aspect they want to go with, right. you know, we would have right. a much we'd have a much happier time, I guess. You know, because you got people who pick, you know, like TCU, who, you know, he cares a lot about age now. Like you don't every time he talks about a player, he'll bring up their age, and I'm like, yeah, age is part of the equation. But again, just because Devin Funches is was 21 years old and he was drafted doesn't mean that he's going to be a great player. Like age isn't a, isn't a, isn't talent. Like just because you're 21, then that doesn't mean that you're good. That by itself doesn't make you good. Pretty much. But there's also been that emphasis on people to, you know, focus to hone in on one thing, you know, whether it's force players or whether it's age, whether it's market share production on the offensive side of things, whether it's even PFF grades, you know, which is a whole other thing to get into, but it's just, you know, PFF has a tendency to, if they had a really high marks on a player in college, 
you'll notice that when they go to the NFL, they still have really high marks. <laughs> you know, like there's it's still the same. Which makes sense because if you really liked them in college, you're gonna start to praise them in the NFL, despite how they play. You know, because that's just gonna happen because of just the whole again the internal biases that you have. You know, too, where you really liked them in college, you go to the NFL, and you still really like them. Cause you'll see that a lot where they they complain about a cornerback they really like, for example, who isn't playing, and they're like, "Hey, he's playing really well, they just not playing them well." There might be something to that why they're not playing more. It might be because they're not as good as you thought they were, but you continue to, which happens with most people anyway. But, but yeah. Right. And one of the things that I've learned, and, and like I said, most of what I've learned, I've learned sort of the hard way. I, I didn't have a particular methodology when I first started. I just watched a bunch of guys. I would look at statistics, but didn't know just like what I was looking for, I just look at them. And, oh, wow, this guy's averaged a lot of yards per carry or a lot of yards per catch. That's nice. Man, this guy really, yeah. I mean, I didn't know even the term market share at the time when I first started doing it. I don't know if anyone used the term back in the 70s or 80s, but I noticed, hey, this guy gets the ball a lot. I noticed this, man, they really get, they really find this guy a lot in their offense. I would notice that. Didn't necessarily know what it meant. And what I'm learning from you and from others is to try to get a better sense of what what, what even constitutes production. Like, is this person productive? Like, how do you actually know? What does production look like? Exactly, because I think a, a, one of the common mistakes people have is, is they'll see a guy who has like a thousand yards receiving and they go, wow, he was really productive. And yet he was in an offense that had 7,000 yards of receiving total. So that's why, again, market share, again, market share to me just gives a better perspective of the player. It happened with Vic Beasley where people were like, Hey, Vic Beasley got double digit sacks, but he was on a team that got a lot of sacks in general. You know, like he wasn't—he wasn't getting like 50% of Clemson sacks, if you will, in any given season. He was—he was a—he was got a lot of sacks, definitely, but he wasn't the driving, like a dominant factor to that, if you will. They still would have got, of course, it's debatable. But they still would have got a lot of sacks, regardless of if he was—he was there for the most part, uh, because of other players. But I just feel like again, you have to look at—you have to look at it from that kind of. Uh, a perspective of market share just because you might have a guy that gets a thousand yards receiving, or you might have a Curtis Samuel who, you know, people were like, Oh, he's better than, <laughs> he's better than McCaffrey because he has more yards on less touches. And yet again, you have to look at the bigger picture, which is that, yeah, but Curtis Samuel isn't the main driving force at a house. He's a good player and he, he's really effective in what he's doing, especially, you know, again, as a receiver, He's doing a lot of stuff and really being effective. He's probably the best receiver there, honestly. But it doesn't mean that he is a he's a dominant force in that offense. He's a part of that offense um, versus being a extremely important factor to that. I guess so. Like you just said, that that's that's why market share is really important to me because as offenses become more heavy, 
with with how many yards they get. Like it really is important to know that just because a guy gets a thousand yards receiving doesn't mean that he was a dominant player because if the offense gets a ton of yards anyways, then you you know, it's just something to look at, I guess. You know, because you have to – and also if a guy doesn't play, like say a guy plays at a offense where they don't get a lot of yards, you know, because of because it's a more run-based offense, um, that doesn't mean that they're a bad player. It just means that they were an offense that didn't throw the football that much. They may be a really good wide receiver that just happens to be on a team that doesn't throw the football a lot. So, so you have that kind of perspective too. So, um, I don't know, it just, it just trickles down to everything really, at least in my opinion, so – but that's kind of why market share is, is, I think, is even more important today just because of the types of offenses that are run and the types of defenses that are run. Um, it really is important to kind of know how, how big of a slice of the pie did they really contribute, if you will. And when it comes to the edge class, you made a good you just made a good mention of, obviously, a guy like Vic Beasley, who a lot of people really, really loved. And a few people were a little less high on him. And my issues really weren't production-based. My issues were mostly based on tape. You know, I noticed that when he is up against guys who can do this, he gets swallowed up. He gets thrown around. You know, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, I want my you know, first half of the first round edge player to be able to do these things. In addition to giving me, you know, eight to 12 sacks on a regular basis, he also should be able to do these other things or else I can get a similar number of sacks from a part-time player who can't do those things also, but I can get them later in the draft. So that's my issue. But, but here's the thing, though, is that that was your issue, but it does show up in, in his production. Because if he was able to take on bigger offensive tackles, if he if he wasn't disappearing at times, because that was my big issue too. Was, was there were games where he just disappeared? It was like he wasn't even there. Right. You know, like it was just like he there's no presence whatsoever because he was just taken care of against certain guys. So, um. So there was that sense of like, yeah, he, if he goes up against this bad athlete tackle, and it's happening in the NFL too. Like when he goes up against a certain type of tackle who isn't very good, can't deal with speed or can't deal with explosiveness, he's going to get pressure and he's going to get sacked. But he ain't going to go up against it. He, he is not going to be able to go against that guy all the time. And a great player is someone who's able to go up against anybody and be productive and that's the thing about Big Beasley that he hasn't proved yet anyways is I know he had the big sack performance against Denver, but I mean, and I'm not trying to lump Khalil Mack into this, but you know, Khalil Mack had a really big game last year. He had like five sacks or whatever. Um, but that was against Ryan Harris, you know, who is not explosive, not very powerful. Like you're going to have those big time performances against those types of guys if you're that type of athlete. And that's my only issue with Vic Beasley is he hasn't shown up to this point that he can go up against a good offensive tackle and be productive. Um, and despite the fact that he'll occasionally have a game here and there where he abuses a guy because they're just not that great, that isn't going to happen forever. You know, like 
like the NFL, you're not going to face terrible tackles all year round. You're going to eventually go up against the guy, and, and that's what separates good players from great players. You know, um, and that was my big issue with, Be- with Big Beasley was, I size wise I had issues with that. I had issues with his power inside, and he, again, I I don't want to say he was a one trick pony. He had counters, but his his counters were not tactically used. I guess is the best way to put it. You know, it was too much of this play. I'm going to do a spin move instead of you know, deciding when to use the spin move to actually maximize its effectiveness. You know, it's, you know, doing a spin move on second and two, stuff like that. He still does stuff like that in the NFL where it's a running down and he's already doing the spin move when he shouldn't even be doing that. He should be recognizing it's a run play and not waste that move on that particular play. Right. So... Is there any player who you can identify or have identified that we haven't mentioned yet who you think is going to undergo maybe metamorphosis is too strong a word, but I mean, obviously it's hard to pick a player who will change the most or improve the most or things like that from college to pro. And it's something that happens extremely rarely. People often project that this person is going to be a better pro they were in college, and I'm not saying it never happens because, hey, it happens, but it's, I mean, the, the the odds are so strongly against it happening. Does it happen? Yes. Does it happen often? Well, no. Well, I'll tell you when it usually happens. Um, it usually happens when a player is drafted and they're really, really young. I'm talking 20 years old entering the NFL like that young, or they're 21, um, and they develop, and they develop into, into players that they're not, they're not great players. I mean, the only guy I would really, the only guy that would really, people would take contention with is Albert Hainsworth, um, to where Hainsworth was, as we all know, Hainsworth was a guy who was a ridiculous athlete at Tennessee. Um, his production at Tennessee was not really that great. I mean, it was, it was not elite in any way, um, but, he developed into this beast mode type of thing and had three seasons where he was just a wrecking ball, you know, like everybody remembers Hainsworth at Tennessee, at least I hope so, you know, where he, where he had those games where he was just unstoppable killing machine type of guy. Three times, he got three, paid. He, yeah. Three times a year, he'd have five and a half tackles for loss, another three or four solo tackles and two sacks on top of it for flavor. Exactly. And then he got paid all that money and went to Washington. And the funny thing, this is a funny thing, though, was when I did, because I, I did market share data for the NFL. Why? Because I was trying to, like, okay, it was mainly to, like, prove a hypothesis, you know, because the hypothesis everybody brings up is, well, if they're this productive, it was sort of like showing that the production in college matches up to the production in the NFL, which it did, was that a lot of the ways that people won, it's pretty it's pretty simple. But, again, a lot of the ways that players win in college is going to be how they win in the NFL. You know, um, one be- the best example I have is Dwight Freeney. Dwight Freeney was a, was a low-tackle, high-stack, high-TFL guy in college. And when he went to the NFL, guess what he was? He was a low-solo-tackle, high-stack, high-TFL guy. Um, when I looked at Hainsworth, 
I looked at his, you know, his general production. And even though that Washington season was really hated for whatever reason, you know, um, in terms of like, oh, you're not doing enough to be productive, he actually was the most productive defensive tackle. Like he he was he had comparable market share production, if you will. Like like it like he was just on a worse team, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Like he went from Tennessee where they had a lot more stuff around him so that he was getting more production, but when he went to Washington he had less stuff around him. He was still producing at the at the similar, you know, market share level. But it just wasn't to the level that people thought he should have been producing, um, and we see that a lot with tons of guys. I mean, in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, Sue in Miami right now. You know, people were criticizing Sue because he should be putting all these stats up and stuff like that. But he's in Miami right now. People like he doesn't have the same type of pass rusher. He doesn't have the same type of you know stuff around him. Yeah, he's still he's still producing at a high level. It's just because the numbers drop the raw numbers, if you will, people criticize him over that kind of stuff. So, um, but anyways, I mean, Hansworth is just a guy that to me, he was probably the best example of a guy who, uh, who, who, who came in, not with, not a ton of production was a great athlete though. And then developed into what he was for that three year period or four year period. And then kind of fizzled out because, you know, again, if you get paid a hundred million dollars bill, I mean, I'm just saying, like, you, you would think that you would want to continue playing, but at the same time, you, you're set for life at that point, at least, at least to me. Uh, so, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you get a $20 million check, you're going to start to reevaluate your life, is what I'm trying to say, uh, in terms of what your goals are and stuff. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, he was just an example of that. And there's been other guys. I mean, there's been, you know, uh, Connor Barwin's been a guy who, um, wasn't that productive, but he had really good athleticism and developed into a into a solid pass rusher, NFL level. Uh, the the other guy, Cameron Wake, you know, he was the guy who came in, had good athleticism, went to Canada, and was a it became a completely different player. You know, got bigger, stronger, came to the NFL, and, and was able to be productive. Um, but the one thing you'll notice with all these guys um, is they had athleticism traits they either had to go to Canada or they had to develop for a couple of years and they became productive players, but they never became elite players. They never became, you know, Albert Hainsworth isn't going to the hall of fame. You know, Cameron Wake mm-hmm. isn't going to the hall of fame. Um, uh, you know, Connor Barwin isn't going to the hall of fame. So like there's a lot of guys who through coaching or being in the right situation found a, found a role and became a, a good player. But, they're not going to be Hall of Famers. I mean, same thing with Ezekiel Anza. Like, Anza is a good player. I mean, he has – he's a ridiculous athlete. Uh, his production actually wasn't that bad at BYU. I know people bring that up, but market share-wise, it was actually better than people think it was. Chandler, He was Chandler Jones level, if you will, in terms of production. Um, and he got really good coaching. And But is he going to be a Hall of Famer? I don't, I don't think so. You know, like, long-term-wise, you do see some things here and there where he's going to be a productive player in the NFL, but you're not quite going to have that special, special player, um, which is the only thing I think that the metrics kind of, but, but again, it, it does give you some things to point to, I guess, to where sure the metrics doesn't catch all those guys hundred percent, but it does show you the, the, it does show you the pieces. It shows you, it shows you some of the, some of the variables that, that made these players, whether it was athleticism, 
or if it was going to a right situation. I mean, Wes Welker, for example, you know, Wes Welker is a guy who production wise came from Texas tech. So he didn't have great market share. You know, he's at Texas tech and, but he, but the one thing he had is he had really good change of direction in terms of his three cone and his short shuttle was way above average for a wide receiver, you know, with his, with his size. And he turned that into a slot receiver. You know, he, he basically became one of the best slot receivers in the NFL for a good portion of the time. And also helped have Tom Brady. Um, but, but the point I'm trying to make is, is, is there's things where, like, there, there's, there's guys who are outliers, but data also gives you the tools to figure out why these players might have become outliers. You know, why, you know, even though they hit, didn't hit all the numbers, that way you may have a draft class where a player – comes around who doesn't hit all the numbers or doesn't hit everything in terms of production, but they may still be a good player because of these certain things that you can actually look to, you know, to, to help you out a bit, to, to decipher the guys that are just going to be four year and gone types of guys and the guys that actually could develop into that, into that sort of long-term, like a Connor Barwin, like who wouldn't want a Connor Barwin? I mean, the Steelers would love to have, you know, oh, a Connor Barwin. You know, know, of course, you know, a younger Connor Barwin, but a Connor Barwin, nonetheless, they would, you know, that would be good for them if they actually got a guy of that caliber. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the basic point, at least to me, it it helps to figure that stuff out too, uh, in terms of figuring out if a guy can develop into that. He's never going to be great, but he's going to be good. I mean, he's going to be a guy who's going to be able to contribute. And uh, that's the only thing I would say about force players is, is it's not really great at finding great players, but it is good at finding guys that uh, can become contributors for teams. Um, and, and you actually get something out of the pick, I guess. That's the really only major benefit to that type of thing is you actually do get guys who can be that contributor guy, uh, if you will. But it doesn't really help you to find out who's going to be great or not. It doesn't really help out much with that. Good point. That is a good point. So, that's the last thing. When it comes to different positions, uh, there's metrics that matter more than others. Obviously, the physical metrics matter more at certain positions. You know, obviously, we've talked about justice and company and the sports players and the T-freaks and the whatever else is that are used to sort of suss out the qualities that help guys who play the quote-unquote physical positions, you know, the ones where you have to be a certain amount of length and strength and speed and quickness and explosiveness and blah, 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 you know, to figure out those guys, to find those guys as opposed to positions that are more based around being able to figure certain things out, you know, on the mental side. So looking, say, for instance, at tight ends, Right, it's one of the positions where production seems to be not persuasive as a as a way of guiding you to future success. What are the things that tend to help to add up to future success at that particular position? Well, <clears throat> the way the way I would put the way I would explain tight end is it's a position where you could be in college and you don't get used. 
you know, because we see offenses in college where they, they don't use the tight end. I mean, there's certain offenses that don't even have tight ends, you know. So Correct. you're going to end up in situations where tight ends just aren't developed because they're in situations where they're just not being given the ball. I would say this is, is production does matter at tight end to a certain extent to where okay. you do you, you do have guys like Greg Olson, you know, like, I mean, there's like the guys right now, I mean, you know, the, the Washington Redskins tight end, uh, you know, had all the concussions and stuff, but, um, you know, oh, Jordan, um, Reed. Jordan Reed, you, know, you have guys who, who hit the production marks, Rob Gronkowski hit the production marks, you know, and you know, Tony Gonzalez, like, uh, Jason Witten. I mean, all those guys hit a level of production. Um, but what was more clearer, I guess, is the fact that the, the great tight ends, the multiple off-road tight ends, those types of guys were ridiculously big, you know, six foot six, six foot seven, 260 pounds, 270 pounds. They had really long arms, you know, significantly long arms um, in terms of, uh, you know, we're talking, you know, top 10 percentile arm length and really big hands as well, you know, having top 10 percentile hand size. So it's, it's, you know, again, you know, we talk about basketball with tight end position a lot, but it's a lot of it is coming down to guys that are basketball players, you know, they're tall, big, have really long arms and have really big hands. And when it comes to the special tight end, is all I would really say is when it comes to the special tight ends, the the omega level tight ends, those types of guys, they're guys who, from a size standpoint and from a physical standpoint, have everything. You know, they have the size, they have the height, they have the length, they have all that stuff, um, and and everything else like that, and athleticism too. Because Jason Witten and Greg Olson and all those guys had, had great, you know, and, and even Travis Kelsey, like all those guys had ridiculous athleticism, you know, sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't mean that production doesn't matter 100% because, again, production production gives you something to feel better about. Like you're going to feel a lot better that Rob Gronkowski was productive on top of having all those physical traits, if that makes any sense. Like you're going to feel a lot better about them making the transition because they have all the physical qualities, and they also have the production to match. But at the same time, if you do find a guy, which doesn't happen every draft class, by the way, who has that size, who has that, that length, and has that hand size, and has all that kind of stuff, you, you'll have the Jordan Cameron. You'll have, you know, the, you know, the Saints tight end that's on the, um, on the, uh, the, uh, Seahawks. Um, oh, Jimmy Graham. Jimmy Graham, right. You'll have those types of guys where um, even though they, they didn't have elite college production, they had size, they had length, they had the hand size, and they had the athleticism um, to match all that stuff. So I would say this, as you can tell, Bill, guys like Cameron, guys like Jimmy Graham haven't quite had long-term consistent success at the tight end position. And the other funny thing to me too is a guy like Tony Gonzalez, who to me, he's kind of slept on at this point. I know he's retired now, but the fact is the guys like the Jimmy Grahams and the Rob Gronkowski's and the guys we've seen today right now don't even hold a candle to what Tony Gonzalez did from his 
rookie season, in terms of consistent production, you know, there hasn't been a guy like Tony Gonzalez in a long time. And even though Rob Gronkowski has been a beast of a player, he's had all these injuries. You know, he, he's had durability problems, and he's also had inconsistent production years and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. And the same thing with Jimmy Graham. You know, he was like a, like a lightning bolt that, that came in, and then it you – know, and some of that's because he went to a different position, but his production has started to decline a bit too. You know, he was like crazy, crazy productive, and then he started to decline a bit. Um, he's still good, but I would just say that when it comes to the tight end position, um, production does matter. But at the same time, if you find a guy that has size, specifically six foot six, two hundred and seventy pounds, has athleticism traits, has the length traits, has the hand size traits, uh, in in terms of like really big hands, um, then those are guys that even though they don't have that production, there is a chance that you could coach them up and they, be, they could become something um, significant and become an elite player, um, despite the fact that they weren't elite players in college. But as I, but as I kind of pointing out a little bit, the long-term success of that may be in question, as we're seeing with Jimmy Graham, as we're seeing with Jordan Cameron, you know, the, the long-term, you know, there may be a lot of short-term success with these guys because of that stuff but the long-term stuff may not quite be there with these guys, but we'll just have to see. Now, let's see how long Jimmy Graham's career lasts, uh, how long Jordan Cameron's career lasts and what that actual stuff is, I guess. Got it. Oh, that is, that is a great, interesting thing to think about because this tight end class you talked about is one that does not inspire a lot of confidence based on, any of the things that get me excited, whether it be production or, or pure physical ability or any of that. So if somebody does emerge and becomes great out of this class, we need to see what hints or what things might have led to it. So what else are you up to? Uh, tell people what they can expect, what you're working on, where they can find and follow you, what's coming up in the world of geometrics in the near future. Well, so far uh, the main things I'm working on is uh, is – finishing up the market share data stuff. Cause I did the power five conferences and the AAC, uh, cause I just wanted to get that out before the weekend. Uh, but I was just mainly working on, um, the rest of that, you know, getting the conference USA, uh, Sunbelt, uh, all that stuff. And then even getting the, uh, the FCS level stuff, which I'll do at the end of the year. Um, cause Christmas time and stuff like that is going to be a lot of data crunching, you know, uh, winter time, mm-hmm. like that's, it's just going to be locking myself in a room for a couple of weeks and just getting everything. So, um, but I just like to do the midpoint stuff just because it gives you a good, it gives you a good, like, sort of like if I missed anybody, if there was somebody that was really productive that I didn't quite see up to this point um, and just kind of go back and watch them and stuff like that. But I'll just say I'm finishing up that sort of stuff and I'll probably have that stuff done by this week and the next week. I'm also going to be doing team centric articles, which I'm probably going to start, this this week uh, in terms of like Alabama, you know, who I feel are the best prospects there and just go down the line of teams, you know, the teams that I've seen and the players that are there and the players that I like and just kind of go from there. And, uh, and yeah, just keep watching tape. You know, I'm up to 800 players right now and uh, I'm probably going to hit. And oh, that's another thing too. The, the main thing I'm working, the big project I'm working on is to have the, the NFL draft 1000 to where it's 
who I think are the 1,000 best players eligible for the NFL draft. Um, and that's going to be a lot of stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm already eight, I'm already at 800. So like, if I just keep on going, I'll hit that mark pretty easily. So, uh, I'll, I'll be working on that. So I'll have that out. And, uh, and that be, that actually be something I'll probably end up publishing in January and stuff like that. So but that'll be more so, uh, you know, again, who, who are the, the actual thousands, you know, the top 1000, if you will. So, uh, you know, that's that's a bigger thing, but that's definitely something I'm going to be working on in the future. Got it. Got it. Well, I will be looking forward to seeing that. That is one of those sort of massive, perfect for, for you kind of uh, projects because nothing says, uh, says Jim Coburn like a giant data-intensive grinder program kind of uh, kind of article or kind of uh, uh, post or whatever. I guess uh, whatever. What will the what will the NFL Draft 1000 be? It will be when it's done. It will be a database. It will be. Oh, it'll it'll probably be an article. It'll probably article, be both. Okay. Probably a database and then a uh, and then an article, and it might be multiple articles. Two. So it might be the quarterbacks, the running backs, the wide receivers, the tight ends, like that. <laughs> I, I don't know yet, but it'll definitely be something like that where it'll be a database and some articles about it. Yeah, well, I will, I will definitely look forward to that. I, Like I said, I've enjoyed uh, all the things you've done, and I've enjoyed getting a chance, because it's, it's been a real insight into sort of a secret world exactly, but, you know, a, a world within the world of, uh, of football where I've, I've resided within this world for quite some time, but there was a world that I didn't see until fairly recently. And so now, you know, when I hear people carp about arm lengths at certain positions, you know, I sort of pay a little attention. But apparently at tight end and some other positions, it actually means something. So, you know, so it means well, more for cornerbacks than tight end. It means something at, it, 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 mm-hmm. again, it, it means more at certain positions. But at the same time, like, okay, take wide receiver, for example. Um, that's a position where all it really tells you is how they win. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, Antonio Brown isn't beating people with his ability to fight for contested catches. And, you know, like he's beating people more with his route running and his ability to change directions. And when you look at his athleticism, he, he does that consistently, you know, um, versus a guy like Calvin Johnson, who was basically like a basketball wire. You know, like he was the prototypical get up, get up there and get it. I'm gonna out jump everybody. I'm gonna. I have more. I have more length than you. I have bigger hands than you. Like I'm gonna get the ball. But at the same time, it's an interesting debate that we get into a lot. Obviously, is who's better, the Antonio Brown or the Calvin Johnson, or are they equally as good? You know, in terms of just their their overall value to a team. I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, they, like they both get similar amounts of yards. They both get similar amounts of touchdowns and contribute in a similar way. So who really is better? So right. that's all I would really say, but it, it just tells you how they win. It doesn't necessarily, that's of course different at like offensive line, which is a totally different thing where, you know, people talk about arm length and how it matters. And I've even talking to guys who talk to NFL teams who say it does matter because of this and this and this. And then you look at the data and it doesn't back that up. 
You know, if, right. if arm length was so important, it was such a major factor in terms of winning and losing, then all the guys that had ridiculous arm length would be the special players. Wouldn't you think so? Like, wouldn't all the players with 36-inch arm length and 37-inch arm length be the beast if arm length was really the end-all, be-all? What you see instead is you have guys that are elite with 37-inch arm length. You see guys who are elite with 34-inch arm length. You see guys who are elite with below average arm length. So you see what I'm saying? Like, does it matter? Like, in terms of that, like, definitely you need a certain level of arm length. I get that. But does it really matter? Are there things that are more important than arm length? Yeah, there are. And I think there's too much of a focus on, depending on the position, of course. I think that certain positions, there's too much of a focus on certain things that don't matter as much. And that's every position that matter you know there's people who like big wide receivers so if a wide receiver doesn't have you know really long arms they're all of a sudden a leper you know nobody wants them you know you saw it happen with Amari Cooper where people were like Amari Cooper isn't the best wide receiver he's too short his arm length isn't that great you know stuff like that (laughs) right yeah, it's ridiculous because in that class, Amari Cooper was the best wide receiver. Yeah. Well, and once again, the the just the just watch the tape people, I would think, would have been like, "What are you nuts? Look at the tape, you know? <laughs> He's amazing on tape. Look at the tape." And you know, he yeah. was really amazing on tape. <laughs> you know, so that was that'd be my only concern there. Is that if you're if you are one of those two members of, of Watch the Tape Twitter, you would have immediately. You know, listen to your feet and pointed out that just look at his tape. He's got really, 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 really good tape. And for me, you know, and obviously there's lots of different things to study, you know, from, you know, correlation between a guy's short shuttle and vertical and, you know, whatever it is, that various positions. I mean, all those things you can sort of do and combine and extract out. If you can gain, and this is where, where my aspiration is to gain at least enough understanding of what the metrics mean to realize which ones matter and which ones don't and sort of where the thresholds are. I'll never get to where you are. I don't have the uh, time nor the information, sure. but, but but I can get to the point where... <laughs> you should get a sense of, you know, because again, as I, it comes back to even athleticism traits. All athleticism traits show you is where they are going to be what scheme do they best fit in? You know what I'm saying? Like, because mm-hmm. there's tons of schemes where they ask athletes to do certain things, and there's certain teams that, you know, that have athletes who excel at those types of schemes. So, like, it's not really about being a the best all-around athlete. It's about finding athletes who have a particular athleticism trait that will make them better than everybody else in terms of that particular scheme. Um, you know, because not every player is going to be the great all-around athlete. Some of them are going to have, like, again, like you said, some of them are going to have a really good short shell three count and not have a really good 40 and not have a really good vertical and broad jump. Um, and I, th- I just think that when it comes to athleticism stuff, it's, it's just about figuring out, okay, what scheme are they going to best fit in and does their tape match the scheme? You know, like that, that was my big issue with Kevin White. It wasn't so much that he wasn't a bad a bad athlete because he wasn't. He was like a really good athlete. It's just right. his athleticism 
was somebody where he's going to need to win with speed and quickness. You know, like those are the things he's going to need to win with, where being a better route runner is going to be much more important than being a going up and get it type of, you know, wide receiver, like a Des Bryant or a Calvin Johnson or any of these others. Like it's going to be more important that he's able to run routes and be efficient in his routes. And that was the number one thing you saw on tape with Kevin White is he wasn't very efficient with his route running. You know, like he he had issues from that kind of standpoint. Um, so, which is which is which was my big issue. But that's basically the, the point I'm just trying to make is you want to see, okay, how, how are they, how can they win as an athlete in the NFL? And then does the tape match that? You know, are you seeing a zone blocking tackle? Are you seeing a power tackle? Are you seeing, if you're not seeing that, then obviously he's not going to be that effective in that scheme, you know? So it, it just kind of comes back to that stuff, I guess. Right. And that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's logic to that. And not everything we run into in, in player evaluation is logical. That's the other thing is that, you know, you hear somebody say that, you know, they, they watch tape of a kid playing baseball or playing basketball. I mean, the thing that sold Bob Stoops on DeMarco Murray was, you know, a thunderous put that dunk in the lane in a basketball game in high school. You know, so there's different things that will sell a, a player to it, you know, some, you know, Urban Meyer talks about the walk-off home run that Tebow hit. You know, we were playing right field in a high school game in a clutch situation. I mean, there's things that you, you you know, have nothing to do with even the tape, at least in the football tape, or right. anything that can be measured. And, well, you know, so there's still, a, yeah. It's like, it's like Derek Carr. Like, the one thing I'll say about Derek Carr is, is I wasn't the biggest believer in Derek Carr, only because there was a few things here and there. And he was in an offense where, you know, it was screen pass, screen pass, screen pass. But right. I didn't have any doubt about his arm strength because that was evident. But I also didn't have any doubt on him as a leader because he was just a magnetic, you know, it's something you can't put your thumb on, I guess. You can't put your finger on. When you right. meet him and you talk to him, he just oozes whatever that other element is, you know, of, yep. of a guy who is a leader, who's a guy who – uh, is, has a, a positive, like he's not a negative, very positive outlook type of guy, a hard worker, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, right. Physically, physically tough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All that Where you stuff. just like a guy and you can't really put your finger on it, you know. There's not like, there's definitely been guys like Derek Carr in the past with that type of, you know, ability to throw the football, but they weren't all the same in terms of the other, you know, the other things, you know, in terms of being a leader and those sorts of things. So, there's always that element too, where you just your instincts again. Your instincts are as big of a part of this as anything, especially in data work. You know, like sure, there there's a method to what I'm doing, but there's also the the sort of picking a player who I think is going to be good and a guy who's going to fail. A lot of that has to do with my instincts, which is informed by the tape I watch and everything else like that. So it's as much instincts as much as everything else. You know, like it's part of it. It just is. Right. And for me, what learning more about what you do has done for me is I will I will start with the thing that I have, you know, the feeling I have about a player. I, I like this guy, this thing about this guy, and then I'll look at what you do to see if I've already like him, but 
you know, do I need to be more cautious in my life? Right. Or right, is it, right. you know, full speed ahead? <laughs> do I need right. to is there watch? something, right. Is there something off? You know, is there something you should go back and, you know, because, because again, if, if, that's a, you know, I don't tell people, but if you disagree with me, fine, you know, like you disagree with me, I'm okay with that. Uh, I just hope you don't disagree with me over something stupid, you know, like over some reason that is like, I, I don't know, uh, just disagreeing with me over some other reason, I yeah, some weird reason, um, which sometimes that happens, but, um, but sure. I mean, if, if there's a player that you say you really like, and then I, you know, production wise, I kind of go, you know, yeah, I'll let you know. And then, then it's, it's, again, it's your duty to kind of go back and you could say, well, no, you know, I think he's really good. Even though he's not productive, there's these things here and there, um, which sometimes happens. And sometimes again, since this is mid season production stuff, they, all these players could have a much better second half, you know, um, and right. get back up into high production levels, you know, like Miles Garrett. Like, I don't think Miles Garrett is, I don't think this is again for Miles Garrett. I think he's going to have a much better second half than he has in the first half just because of stuff happening. You know? But, um, right. But yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely that sort of factor in the thing where it's just a thing to go back and look at the tape and, you know, make sure that you're, you know, you're double checking you know, you're, you're, there's a process, you know, it's just a, the method of process where you want to call it to, uh, to help you. So you hit on more players. You know, right. um, is there anything wrong with that? Exactly. I was going to say, that's the one thing I could say is that there's, I can't understand why anybody would have a problem with anything that helps them to, uh, to be right more often. (laughs) I have no problem with it. Uh, You know, I I spent a long time doing it, you know, basically based on nothing but, you know, uh, stuff I'd learned the hard way and feelings and, you know, whatever. You know, all the uh, all the stuff you just sort of go off of until you have something better and having something else to work with, having something uh, that can back up your, as you said, your instincts and your uh, emotions, because that's what we're talking about. It's, there's still an emotional component to this because you're dealing with human beings, but that'll never change, but you do want to balance it. And that's what you've helped me and hopefully others to do. Jim, as always, is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. We will do this again, sir, in one, well, six days. We'll probably be back on Saturday. But uh, we'll do this again very soon. Thank you again.